We've got a huge show for you today. And as a bonus, we've added our Hoka One One segment with Hoka One One NAZ Elite Coach Ben Rosario. It's now at the end of this podcast. Let us know. Send us an email at podcast at letsrun.com if you think we should drop stuff like this at the end of a podcast or have them separately. But big show today. Noah Lyles versus Christian Coleman, Sidney McLaughlin. You'll hear more. The regular intro coming up next. And if you got listener audio for us, you can call 844-LET'S-RUN, option 7, and you could win a free pair of Hoka One One Carbon X shoes. 844-LET'S-RUN, option 7. Coleman gets perhaps the best start, Su Bing Chan right alongside him, Prescott not too far away either, but it's Christian Coleman moving away, Lyles is finishing very, very quickly, and it could be Lyles! Wow, what a finish! From nowhere at 50 meters, he came storming through, I said he might struggle to hang on to them early on, but goodness me, a little like last year when Prescott finished so quickly, Lyles gets it on the line, 9.86, look at him, he's finishing like a train. Thank you, Steve Cram, for the call of the 100 meters in Shanghai. That was the race of the weekend, undoubtedly. Noah Lyles against Christian Coleman, and I think it's a fitting way to kick off another edition of the Let'sRun.com Track Talk podcast. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm going to be joined shortly by Let'sRun.com co-founders, a.k.a. my bosses, Robert and Weldon Johnson, and we're going to talk Noah Lyles, Christian Coleman, Twitter beefs. We're going to talk Kenny Bednarek, who is the Juco phenom tearing up the track. Gwen Jorgensen had heel surgery. So that's going to be something we're going to talk about. Controversy at the Iowa High School State Meet. Yes, we're talking Iowa High School running. Seven laps, eight laps, you decide. Alicia Montano was the focus of a New York Times article about pregnancy, female athletes, a lot of stuff to get into there we've got audio of the week and much more well then robert good to talk to you on this wednesday morning thank you john thank you please call us mr johnson since we're your bosses and you're you're leaving out the big story of the week the raccoon at robert's house has been caught we have secured the raccoon hopefully it's been taken to a safe place but we'll get an update on that as well robert you're safe good to hear it Family safe as well. I was quite proud of myself for quote unquote getting my man card back since I was the one that trapped the raccoon myself. But then my wife said, Well, what about the other two? So I'm not sure if I've successfully completed the project, but uh, very excited. Well, protecting the family, we, we like to see that. Uh, let's start in Shanghai, Lyles, Coleman. I think it was a race we were all looking forward to. It maybe wasn't, wasn't the headliner going into the meet. I think everyone was looking forward to. Abdurrahman Samba and Rai Benjamin in the 400 hurdles. And that race didn't disappoint. They both ran sub 48, Samba getting a win. But Lyles and Coleman was the one that people were talking about afterwards, not just because it was so close. Lyles with an incredible comeback over the last 20 meters to come up and get the win by six thousandths of a second over Coleman. Both men credited with 986. That's a PR for Lyles. It's 0. 0.7, 0. 0.07 off of Coleman's PR from last year. And the Diamond League final. To me, my biggest takeaway just from the race itself was Noah Lyles emerging as a threat for the 100-meter title this year because last year he won USA's. He ran sub-990. He was one of the best in the world, no doubt. But he said at the start of the season, he told Reuters he was only focusing on the 200. He left the door open. He said, you know, maybe if something changes, I'll do the 100. But 
really the 200 was going to be his primary focus. And remember, you know, he Lyles, he's still a young guy. He's still only 21 years old. So I didn't, I think they didn't want to put too much on his plate too early. But this win against Coleman, who was the best in the world last year, really shows that he's, he's, you know, arguably he's, if he's not the best 100 meter runner in the world right now, Noah Lyles, he's basically right on par with Coleman. I spoke to Otto Bolden earlier this week. He thinks for sure, Lyles, this was enough to prove to him, hey, I'm enough, I'm good enough to do the 100 at Worlds. He's going to try for the double USA's and Worlds. I'm excited to see that. Uh, what was your takeaway from this? Well, I'm glad that you guys actually watched the race. Um, while the two, Jonathan Weldon, were both frolicking this weekend, I, Steve and I, unnamed boy Steve.1.1, Steve Soprano and I were both working at 7 a.m. on Saturday. So glad you guys did actually finally watch the replays. But um, no, my, my thoughts are, first of all, I will, the race was amazing. I mean, as you've been talking about it, John, I've just been replaying it over and over on my computer. Like, Lyles is so far back. I've never, like, his last, if you just play the last 30 meters over and over, it looks like he's been shot out of a cannon. It's amazing. So his close was amazing. But, John, I, I love the piece that you wrote in Let's Run yesterday, and I loved Otto Bolden's quote. And I, he, he said, no question, absolutely no question as to whether Noah Lyles runs the 100. So there's so much more money, I think, in the 100. I think he probably does it. My concern, though, is, and I don't not know if I'm a sprint expert to ask this, but do you get injured more likely by trying the doubles and stuff like that? I, I just don't know the answer to that. It's a it's a bigger workload, no doubt. You have to. I mean, remember Bolt in his final year? Why did he stop training for the 200? Because it was more time practicing, and it was just took more effort. And especially if you're racing, think about USA's. You've got the hundred and the 200. It's a four day meet, and you've got multiple rounds of each. You know, it's it's tough. Collegians do it though. It's not that it's obviously it can be done, but just doubling up is it's very difficult to do. And we sometimes take it for granted that Bolt was able to do it year after year. But one of the reasons he did it at Worlds and Olympics all the time is because he wasn't racing as much in the Diamond League. He was always banged up for the last few years of his career. So it's an added strain. But Lyles is young. He's strong. I think he's up to the challenge. Hope I hope he is. As the leader of the Noah Lyles fan club, I believe I was the first person to point out and really promote him going undefeated in the Diamond League last year. He's never lost the Diamond League 200. I think this is great. We need a rivalry, but you really need a rivalry at 100 meters, right? If guys are rivals at 200, it's just not the same thing. It's sort of like heavyweight boxing. This was tremendous. Christian Coleman, like in America, nobody knows who either one of these guys are either, either, um, but... Lyles has the like tremendous personality, but if you become the top hundred meter person, you win the Olympics, Christian Coleman, people are going to notice who you are. So these guys have the opportunity. They're both being so young. They could both be here in 2028 in America. So there's just, I keep sort of talking about this window we have to build something in the sport, but if these guys could go at it for six or eight years, I mean, that's a really long time to be at the top and sprinting. It'd be tremendous. And I love to see Noah Lyles try to run the hundred as well. I mean, he's made to run the 200. I like the rivalry aspect. I guess we haven't talked about that, but, you know, Coleman threw some little shade out there on Twitter afterwards and just shows, you know, this is an early season meet in May and he's kind of pissed that Lyles beat him, but hey, this is great. No, it's it's awesome. I And yeah, we have to hit it. Let's talk about Twitter. Christian Coleman and his girlfriend were both, you know, taking some shots at Noah 
after the race, Christian tweeted from his account, some of y'all got the game messed up. The name of the game is World Medals, but PRing in May is cool for social media, dough. And he followed that up with, seems as if some people are confused. It's nothing wrong with the PR, but if your goal is to run fast in May, to taunt and flex online, then, you pro- then your priorities aren't straight, in my opinion. The season is just getting started. So, yeah, if you know Christian Coleman a little bit, he's he's not the loud, outgoing personality like Noah Lyles. He generally is a little bit more low-key and understated. And so that's why I was a little surprised to actually even see him tweeting about this stuff. But he took notice that Lyles was celebrating this win and making it a big deal. And to be fair, I mean, running a PR, a world leader of 986, to win your first Diamond League 100, I'd be pretty happy about that. And I, th- I think, I, to my, from what I've seen, I don't think Lyles was over extending himself or doing anything you know too inappropriate but if there's a beef between these two i I think that's great i think it draws more eyeballs to the sport it's more interesting to me i i don't want to see them you know fighting or anything i don't think they're going to do that it's not going to go that far but i think it's good for the sport okay john i I, i'm fascinated by this well first of all when you interviewed Otto bolden about this did you know about the girlfriend's tweet already how did you or do you follow christian coleman's girlfriend on twitter did Otto told tell you no Otto told me about it Okay, I was amazed by that. But if you take these statements, and have we mentioned what the girlfriend says? No, read that off. So the girlfriend, who's a spinner, I think, at Georgia, says someone gets an inch or win by .006, and they take a mile. Crying, laughing emoji. Yeah. I I don't think that either one of these statements, if you actually read them, is that provocative or crazy. It's just the fact that it's sort of permanent on Twitter. But uh, my question is, like, to me, they come off as insecure. Like who was talking about all of this? Like this meet wasn't even on TV in the U.S. Was like this is the problem with social media, and and I I find myself in the same way even on the Let's Run forum. One person says something negative, and you think, oh, everyone's out to get me. Oh, everyone's talking shit about me. No, I I, I don't think so. But I I I think it's kind of interesting that they're talking beef. But John, the the, the you know Otto was pretty direct. He says if these guys don't like each other, is it clear that they don't like each other, or is he just sort of speculating there? I think he doesn't know too much about their relation he essentially said his understanding is that they don't he doesn't think he doesn't know that of a big dislike between them but i also think he doesn't think they're particularly close and he knows christian decently well because he's involved with hsi which is his is coleman's agency so yeah i think they're not they're not super close it doesn't seem like they totally hate each other either though maybe we should get Otto on a podcast or john you should have secretly recorded him Anyway, uh, excuse me. Well, then I, I did record him, but I asked his permission because I'm a professional. So uh, maybe next time we can get that him on was the a pod. joke. I just meant to use it on the podcast. I assumed you actually recorded it, but I wouldn't use it on the podcast unless you'd ask. Yeah, right, right. Of course. But maybe Coleman is reacting to Noel Lyles, what he posted on Instagram. It's uh, well, there's two photos, but one photo, he's, it's him at the finish after he's finished in Shanghai. He's got his arms out both number one very triumphantly and then it says today starts my legacy for becoming a hundred and two hundred runner and they going to say no one should have all that power and then it's got a picture of a guy flexing oh that's pretty big then i get it i get it i take that back christian and girlfriend i love it stand up for yourselves this guy's flaunting it it's like winning the prelims and then you know doing a big dance 
Well, and the other thing is we t- the finish of the race was very interesting as well because not only did Lyles make up that big deficit, but as he was crossing the finish line, like before he even crossed the finish line, actually, he starts looking across the track to see where Coleman is. And he was doing an Instagram Q&A, and they were like, sorry, Q&A. And he was asked, were you looking at the clock? And he said, no, I have no reason to look at the clock. I was looking at Coleman. So he was sort of staring him down. Maybe then I'd have to ask Noah himself exactly what he meant by him, by that. But the way I read it is sort of like, yeah, uh, he, I think I, the way I read it is he was just wanting to check where Coleman is, but you know, you could interpret it as him sending a message and telling Coleman, yeah, I'm going to be here in the hundred this year. I'm not going away either way. I think it's, it's good that these two young guys are both, yeah, there's a little little tension between them, and we're going to have multiple battles. That's the other thing. Gatlin and Bolt, they basically just raced each other at Worlds and Olympics at the end of their career. You know, they didn't really run against each other on the circuit. These guys, they have to run USAs against each other because the Diamond League, none of, neither of them have the buy. The buys for the Diamond League won't be determined until the end of the Diamond League season. So they're going to be running the 100 and 200 most likely at USAs. Maybe a Diamond League or two here or there. We don't need them running every week, but we need them running more than just once a year. And then, of course, hopefully a double showdown in Doha. And who knows? Maybe Michael Norman hops down in 200 as well. I mean, it's, it's going to be a good season of sprinting. And that shows the beauty of the Olympic trials, right? These guys have to compete. It shows why the Olympic trials are so sacred in America and so wonderful because just so much is on the line, right? And the fans get to see them compete beforehand. We don't need them to see them compete 10 times a year. But competed at trials or a USA championships with a world spot on the line, like that's big time. So IWF, USATF, still figure out that Olympic qualifying thing because we need the top three protected at the trials. Yeah, and just you know, for the record, we uh, still don't know how USATF selecting their marathon team. Another week's gone by, another week without clarification, just for the update there. What day are we at, John? We, we need a clock. <sighs> I don't even have a day. It's, it's, been, it's been a long time. And we, we can talk a little more Shanghai distance stuff in a minute, but I think Noah Lyles and Christian Coleman, no one will even know who they are come 2020 because we have Kenny Bednarik and we also have Michael Norman who did some stuff this weekend. Let's quickly turn to them. Kenny B as I call him because, you know, like Kenisa Bakila, he ran a pretty sick double, 1982 and 4483 on the same day. And this is at the junior college championships. And, you know, the 1982 was into the wind. Granted, it's an altitude. And the day before, he ran a 1949 200 meters with a huge tailwind. So both those are pretty sick. And just a freshman. Yeah, well, a 20-year-old freshman. But still, this kid's the real deal. Sub 45 and sub 20 on the same day. I think Robert said it's only been done one other time in history. Well, one other person, Isaac McCall has done it twice. He's actually gone sub forty four in one of those performances. So he ran a forty three. But wasn't that in wasn't that in like Cholafon or one of those questionable tracks? Uh, the you know the Swiss track that always produces crazy times. That was from my memory. I don't want to discredit Isaac if that wasn't true. But too late, John. Too late. He's already been discredited. And, and that, I mean that's pretty sick for a guy nobody knew who he was last year. I mean he was in what Wisconsin, I think high school is that yeah. correct now he's at community college in iowa dates wrong we should give a shout out to his uh school indian hills community college in iowa 
Yeah. And he went to Rice Lake High School in Wisconsin. Now, he was pretty good at Rice Lake. I mean, he, he was state records at the D2 level at the 100, 200, and 400, setting all state records in the 2 and the 400. He ran 1042, 2043, and 46, 68. So guy was clearly a beast, but, I mean, he's now at, at a whole nother level. Um, he also had come in. I mean, he ran like 20, 30 indoors, so this didn't come out of nowhere. He killed everybody at Drake Relays, running 2029 20, there. But, um, you know, I've done the, the, the wind and altitude conversions using Jonas Murek as calculator. Converts both those races from this weekend almost exactly the same, 1986 and 1987. So he's pretty good. I, I read where his coach talked someone something about him possibly going to USA's, but he sent out a tweet three days ago, and he said, it's been a long season, can't wait to get home and finally relax. So I, I think that... Now, if he's going to go back to college and not go pro, that's probably a smart thing. Shut it down while you're on top. Because USAs are a long way from now. Yeah, last weekend of July, it is a long season for a 20-year-old. You know, unless Pre or somebody's going to give him a lane. Wow, Kenny B's season was over before anyone got to see him run. I, I read an interesting thing that where, where I think it was Sprint Geezer on the message board, who's like an expert, self-professed expert, at least, on, on sprinting. He was saying that, you know, you can't read too much into a 200. He said there's a lot of, there's a history of a lot of runners running a great one-off 200. Hey, Clarence Munyai lost, yeah, sub-197. You guys don't remember him? And, you know, they need to be consistent. He was worried about his form, but then he said, like, the choppy form works better than the 400. It was kind of interesting. But, hey, I wouldn't say it's a one-off because he's done it on two straight days. And he ran 20-30 indoors, which is pretty studly as well. No, he's the real deal. I'm excited to see what he can do. And actually, Munyai gave him a little crap right there, but he's only 21 years old as well, so he might still have more up his sleeve. He was third in Shanghai over the weekend. But on a converted basis, Kenny B was not the best 200-meter runner this weekend. Michael Norman, 1984 in Shanghai, excuse me, in Osaka, into the wind. So that equates to 1981 for 200-meter no wind, no altitude. I mean, Osaka is pretty much sea level. Being the head of the self-proclaimed Noah Wiles 200-meter fan club, I want Noah Wiles to never lose a 200 to the Diamond League. I started to get a little bit worried, but I want you guys to tell me what the slowest 200 was last year that Noah Wiles ran. Weren't they all like 1906, 1907? 1973.: I'm say 19.69. Wow. You guys are both pretty good. His first race in Doha, he ran 1983, and then everyone after that was under 19.7. So, yeah, all between 1965 and 1969, so very consistent. Yeah, but, I mean, I have no doubt that that Norman can run that fast at some point. It's a question of getting in the same race as Lyles and also, but I think Norman, his best event is clearly the 400. Lyles is the 200. So, I think if they're both at their best, it's probably Lyles, but... If Norman, I mean, if Norman break, if he runs forty two seconds in the two in the four hundred this year, which he could, it's going to be running like, you know, nineteen four or nineteen five in the in the two hundred probably. John, later in the show, we're going to have hot audio from the listeners, and they want more hot takes. Clearly, you're wrong, John. I mean, I, I think that Norman's best event is the eight hundred. He's a sub one forty eight hundred meter runner. Okay, that's a joke, but this does get me thinking. Like, what could Lyles run for four hundred? That's everyone always wants to project. It's like it seems like Lyles is better than better than these guys. He's, I think he might be better than Coleman. Well, he starts not good enough. I mean, what was the big question about Usain Bolt in his career? He ran the hundred and two hundred. Yeah, but what could that guy do in the four hundred long jump? That's what people wanted to know. And 
Hey, right. We're talking about guys who can do 200 and 400 and then Lyles can do 200 and 100, but we haven't, we haven't talked about him. We're 20 minutes in. We've had sprint discussion. You guys know where I'm going? White lightning. Matthew bowling, baby. 100, 200 and 400. His schedule came out for the summer. I don't know if you guys saw this last night. No USA seniors. He'll be doing USA juniors and then the USA junior Pan Am team. So maybe a good decision for for him, but like a bad decision for sprint fans who somehow wanted to see him take on the best. He's blowing up though. He was on Saturday night live mentioned him this weekend, which when was the last time a, any track athlete outside of Usain Bolt was mentioned on Saturday night live. I can't remember, but also Weldon, you're giving him credit in the 100, 200, and 400. This guy is ranked fifth in the United States in the long jump this year. Fifth in the entire country, not just high schoolers. So if we're talking about, I know he's, you know, he says he wants to do the Pan Ams, but I don't think he has any chance to make the team to Worlds in the 100. But doing the long jump, I think he's got, a, he's got an outside shot to do that. So that, that would be very interesting if he gave it the long jump a shot at USA's. But he's a high schooler. It's up to him and his coach. My question is, who's calling the shots here? Is this some elaborate plan by Petros? I don't even know how to say Petros's last name. John, do you know how to say it? Kipriano, I believe. Kipriano, the Georgia coach. So he, he won't go pro early. So he doesn't run against USA's and smoke everybody. This is what has to happen, folks. If he doesn't want to run USA seniors, that's fine. But... This guy needs to get a lane at the Prefontaine Classic in the 100. He might get smoked, but how exciting would that be? He needs to be in the 100 of the Pre-Classic. Put Kenny B in there as well. I know it's June 30th, so it's kind of a ways off, but it's not, it's not that long, certainly for bowling, if he's going to be running USA's anyway. So they put they, they put high schoolers in pre and, and the distance races all the time. So why not bowling, Pre-Classic 100, put him in there now. I don't know how to get myself start my consulting services out there. My my creative ideas for the sport are so much better than what we're seeing. It's just like ridiculous. Y'all saw my world marathon majors proposal. That's just out in the week. That was correct. Yeah. Robert, I, I have a genuine question about that actually. And Robert's proposal is that we go, if you want to go to, to up to eight majors, because they can the world marathon majors has announced that the Chengdu marathon in China, a race, which, no one has heard of and which only came into existence in 2017 is now has candidate status. So they're studying whether they're going to add it to the majors or not. And they're also doing that with the Singapore marathon from a few years ago. But yeah, Robert's suggestion is if they go to eight majors, they eliminate the elite pro fields from half of them. So you have four, four of them have a super good men's good elite field and four of them have a really good women's elite field. Let me, let me make that a little easier to understand. My proposal is there's six world marathon majors now. They're thinking about adding one more. So I'm like, we're going to have seven majors. Like really? Like what sport has seven majors? That's too many. So then I thought, well, okay, if we're going to do more, maybe we go to eight. But what we do is we don't have a men's and women's pro race at each one. We have a men's pro race in New York, a women's pro race in Boston. And that way you only have four majors of each sex. And it's much better for the viewing public because you can focus on one race instead of having these dumb TV cameras. If they won't start the races far enough apart that one finishes when the other one's at halfway, then we only focus on one race because this world is is enough. Our attention is already divided enough with Twitter and Facebook and phones and crap. We need to be able to focus on a race for two hours. It's good for the world to focus on one race for two hours. So wait, my question to you, Robert, though, you would you prefer that over the structure we currently have? eight majors but with only one gender 
being elite race per major or six majors with the current format? What would you prefer? Um, oh, that's a good question. I mean, I like what we have now, but you have four really good races. It would force the guys to, to race each other even more. Like the majors would be even more dramatic, really. But the only problem is like if one race is a dud, then you don't have anything to distract yourself. Um, yeah, I think my idea might be even better. I agree in theory with the principle of four majors because that's what other sports have. And even talking about the Diamond League, I don't think the solution is for the guys to race like eight times a year, six times a year. I mean, six is better. Four times is actually probably better. But in theory, okay, four is better. But then like what? You're going to like one year, the New York City Marathon is the women's pro race. And you're going to have this other men's race and people would still try to win it. And the TV still going to cover it. And locally, it's still going to be covered. So in practicality, it doesn't really work. I think we're fine with the majors we have. Is it just now a money grab just to sort of market yourself around the world? Like, look how great we are. Like, so we can bring in more sponsors. Like you have a tight knit group. I don't see what, what's wrong with just keeping what we have or why couldn't Rotterdam bring it. Just going to China just seems like such a total cop out, right? To some race that has no prestige, no nothing. And now you're saying like, Hey, you pay enough money. You can become a major. Like, okay. What about, why isn't Dubai a major then? Well, it's because we're thinking of this from the elite perspective, okay? And the World Marathon Majors, while they do a lot to promote the elite end of the sport, they also want to promote themselves just as races and as financial entities. And that's why you have this six-star finisher medal that they've given out, encouraging everyone to go across the world and run all these made, made, uh, all these races. And China, marathoning is becoming quite popular in China, so they might want to establish a beachhead there. I, I can understand sort of from a business perspective that not every decision they're going to be making is about the elite of the elite because it's a small portion of their field. But yeah, my, like, I think you made a good point, Weldon. It's like people are always going to care who wins the New York City Marathon or the, or the Boston Marathon. And you don't want to have, you know, the Boston Marathon champion with an asterisk for the men's winner. You don't want to have some guy winning it in 216 who's this weekend warrior, you know? Well, not a weekend warrior, but sub sub elite i hadn't thought about that's a good point weldon but it would be interesting you know you're the amateur champion you could market as amateur champion my other theory for these majors is we need to we need to put some some variants in there or spice it up a little bit put a rabbit in new york every other year so you have a the rabbited champion and the unrabbited champion it's like comrade is the up and down champion like these things these races just keep doing the same thing every single year there, there's no change you know whatever so i i don't think it would be that bad if we had a the amateur champ in boston the problem is the shoe companies would probably send some you know there's so many you know 209 kenyans that would probably show up just for the publicity no steven van, steven van gamplier you guys remember him he can make a career out of this how could i forget winning the the boston 2019 boston marathon open champion right we already have this we already have this a guy like that would win the open race every time all right, I think we we talked about Shanghai a little bit, but there's a few things we missed out on there. One of them, I want to talk about distance races here, guys. We're let's run.com. We're just talking about sprinting. You know, it's, it's pretty pretty off brand for us. The 5,000 meters men's Yomif Kajelcha gets the win. Not a huge surprise there. He he looked good. You know, he he waited until the back stretch to really start picking it up, and then when he went, he went hard pulled away to, to get the win Selman Borrega who beat him in Brussels last year in the Diamond League final couldn't quite hold on at the end so good win for Kajelcha but are you guys worried Paul Chalimo 12th place 
13-13. He was almost 10 seconds behind Kajelcha. And if you remember the Diamond League final last year, he was also way back. He ran 12.57, which was a PR for him, but he was about 14 seconds off the win. Any concern about Paul Chalimo getting smoked in this race? Yes. So I wasn't working on Saturday at my annual golf outing. I didn't run into the let's, I ran into a let's run guy last year at this thing. Didn't see him this year. Embarrassing myself on the golf course for two days. Race was on. I was trying to watch it on my phone. And the 5K was coming to an end. And I was real quickly kind of trying to zoom in and look and see where the hell Chalimo was. Like, which of these guys was? And it was like final lap. And I, you know, I hadn't been watching any of it previously. And I couldn't make him out. And I'm like, well, he's got to be one of those guys. <laughs> but I guess he wasn't. So, of course, there's some concern. But not a lot. He he changed completely what he did this winter, right? He didn't race any indoors, and he did the New York City half marathon, which didn't seem to go that well. It went so-so. But Worlds are so much later. USA's is later. I think Paul could have the chance to you know, try something differently, maybe go less intense. So he's not very old. You know, I, I just feel like, Okay, he just didn't hit it as hard, hot. Come back to me in a month, see where he's at. John, my question for you is, what did Paul Chalimo run in Shanghai last year? He was second place. He just got out kicked by Bahanu Balu. I mean, he, he oh might have God. Run- First of all, that was supposed to make you look bad. How in the hell did you know that? It's my job. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember random facts. I was going to point out that he did run 1309.66, but that's misleading because first of all, Shanghai wasn't a diamond league event. The 5,000 was a diamond league event for the men last year. And he only lost by 0.02 in that, in that race. So, and he looked over his shoulder about 20 times on the final lap. So the race wasn't that much different, um, you know, time wise, but no, it, but there's a huge difference between running 1309 and getting barely out kicked for second and getting totally smoked on the final two laps. Like he did. He, he just wasn't even in contention. And to me, I'm I'm not. Yeah, he's had some bad races before. If you remember a couple of years ago with the pre classic, he didn't look that good, and he ended up meddling at Worlds. And in 2016, he barely made the Olympics team, and then he got the silver in Rio. Like this guy, sometimes everyone has a few ba- a bad race here or then. So I'm not going to totally worry about this. But you know, if if we get to USA's and he's getting beat, or you know, he's off his game there then you start getting worried. But I'll give him some time, especially he's got the 10,000 in Stockholm coming up where he's trying to make the hit, the I think, the probably the Olympic standard, but definitely the world standard because he wants to do both this year. So we'll see how that goes. That'll be interesting. He's never run a, a top-level 10,000. Actually, according to his IMDb, not IMDb, his Tilstapaja, he his last 10,000 meters was the 2011 NAIA Championships in Marion, Indiana, which he ran... Oh, according to this, my 10,000 meter personal best is actually one second faster than Paul Chalimo's on the track. It says his is 29.44, mine's 29.43. So I can be officially faster than him, at least on the track, for uh, you know about nine more days. Hey, what do you guys think about him trying to be a 10,000 meter runner? I don't know. I assume some guys can move up, but some guys I think aren't suited for that. His half didn't go that well. So I mean, maybe it's all new to him and by worlds it'll be fine, but... They're very different. The 5K and 10K can be different beasts. I mean, I guess recently most of the guys have been good at both, but if you're more of a 15 guy, the five might be more where you max out on the track. I just think focus. he should focus on the five, but whatever. I mean, he's got to get in the 10 somewhere, right, to get the standards. 
Yeah, um, wh- I don't know. Why not try it? I mean, he's been very successful in the 5,000. Silver and bronze, the last two worlds. I, To me, I think racing a couple 10,000s, I don't think it's going to make him worse at the 5,000. I mean, though maybe, you know, maybe. I, th- I think the winter, he did more endurance training this year, but I think that was also just geared towards making him a better 5,000 runner as well because he got dropped in Brussels. So to me, I don't see any harm in trying it out. If it goes disastrously, you bag it and... Also, remember this year at Worlds, the 5,000s first. So he has nothing to lose by entering the 10,000 afterwards. Yes, with nothing to lose, there's no reason not to do it. And I like that he's changing things up. I mean, he was significantly behind them in terms of where he needed to be at the end of last year. He thinks, I need to get more endurance. So if he's behind and where, you know, he's what, 15 seconds behind now? But he's got. No, no, he was like nine seconds behind in Shanghai. You know, he's got June, July, August, September. He's got four more four plus months to, to get back in shape. So if you're a five thousand meter runner, I've started a message board thread. It's in the week that was. Why do the Kenyan men now suck at the five thousand? One thing to notice about Shanghai is the top five finishers were all Ethiopian. The top five finishers um last year in the in, in the world were also born in Ethiopia. So you really have to go back like five years to even find an Ethi- a Kenyan that has broken twelve fifty-five in the 5,000, um, whereas 22 Kenyans have done that in history. And the question I had on, on Let's Run this morning was, what explains the sort of the Kenya being bad at the 5,000? And, and I'm reading the message board. There's already 20 posts on there. It's only been up for like an hour or two. You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, the money on the roads. But I, I try to get people to understand, yes, there's a lot more money on the roads. There's a lot more money in the, in the road races, particularly, you know, unless you're one of the very top people in, in the world on the track, it doesn't make sense to run the track. But that doesn't explain that would be true for the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians are still running well at the 5,000. The Kenyans aren't people talking about drug testing. Well, that's also true for the, for, for the Ethiopians. So I just, it's interesting to me, you know, and actually Paul Chalimo is, you know, a Kenyan born guy that's running pretty well for America. Although I guess he hasn't run under 1255. So do you guys have any theories that pop out of the top of your head? Or are we going to have to just rely on the masses to tell us the answer? EPO doesn't work in the 5,000. No, just kidding. Kind of jaded by this whole drug thing. Eunice Kurwa, Olympic silver medalist, is now tested positive to go with Jemima Sungong, Olympic gold medalist in the marathon pretty soon. Hey, Shalene Flanagan, might, she's one spot away from the podium now. But I was going to say drugs, not drugs, but I was going to say money, but you're right, money's involved everywhere. But the one thing that I think that's different between Kenya and Ethiopia is Ethiopia maybe is a little more top-down in the training. So somehow maybe through the Federation, they could still put the focus on the 5k and the track stuff. Whereas in Kenya, if there's just so many more runners, I feel like, or Ethiopia is getting more numbers now, but there's just more people. It's kind of a little more anything goes. So people might just gravitate to where they see the money. So the group culture of Kenya could have shifted more to the roads than in Ethiopia. I mean, there's sort of a cultural things that go on sort of behind the scenes that we may not be seeing. All right, guys. Um, I men- earlier, I mentioned, mentioned golf, and at the golf tournament, my buddy's wife, she's a doctor. And she was saying how she takes CBD oils. So that reminded me. We've not done a sponsor plug. Don't be done buying CBD off the street. Like at my corner here at 104 in Broadway, New York, pharmacies, now I've got a sign out. It said CBD oils. I almost took a picture and said, no, 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 don't buy CBD oil, oil here. You need to buy it from floydsofleadville.com, sponsor of the podcast. These are certified CBD products designed for runners for recovery, or some people even take CBD if you can't sleep. So if you're thinking about a new way for recovery, 
Consider floydsofwebville.com. Use code RUN2019 to save 15%. I don't even know anything about CBD products. Well, I'll let you handle all that. But I did read something on the internet like that a lot of CBD products are fake, even at like pharmacies. So I think it is good that they order from Floyd's of Wayville. I will give that plug. And I'm not just making it up. Like I read that knowing nothing about it. So got to pump the, pump the sponsors. Chris Lear, author of Running the Buffalo, is calling me right now. Shall we put him live on speakerphone on the podcast? Let's try this. Sure, why not? We can always edit him out if he says Chris. Chris. Chris, you're yeah. live on our podcast. Nice. Ask me anything about running. I haven't asked before. You just what? Like, tell us what what are your impressions of the running world? Like, what's the big thing going on right now? I think the big thing in the running world right now is that Noah Lyles is the best sprinter in the world, and people are overlooking the pedigree. Who is Noah Lyles' father? Oh wow! I have no idea. I thought they were both both call it. He was the son of college sprinters. I know that. No idea. Oh, you can't hear John. Yeah, John said his. He said his dad was a college sprinter. Yeah, no idea. So was his mom. His dad was Kevin Lyles, forty-five point oh one four hundred meter runner for Seton Hall University in the mid nineties, and world championship team member in nineteen ninety-seven. I think he got a gold medal in four by four. I remember Kevin Lyles. I had no idea that was his dad. Like you always see, I know. you always no, see his mom at me. It's amazing. Wow. And his mother was an all-American sprinter as well at Seton Hall. And Seton Hall no longer has a men's track team. I don't know if they still have a women's team. Wow. Or did they bring it back? Maybe they brought it back. I think they got rid of it for a while. How'd you know? I mean, I guess New Jersey proud, right? His dad's a huge Seton Hall fan. New Jersey proud. But actually, I didn't know because I saw Noah Lyles. I saw it, and somehow I, I never saw it written that his father was a damn good runner. <clears throat> Franklin High School, Seton University. All right, thank Legend. you. What else should we know? That was pretty good, actually. That was pretty good. I'm dropping knowledge. Um, I feel like there's not any coverage of the college regional races. Is that because they are all this weekend? Yeah, they haven't happened yet. But they haven't happened yet. Okay. Grant Fisher lost a couple of races. Is that a surprise, or is he just trying it through? The guys who beat him are really good. He runs in a tough conference. John said the guys who beat him are pretty good. Tough conference. Training through. Actually, the guy from Arizona State, right? Princeton grad, fifth year at Arizona State. Wow, Chris, uh, you're showing some knowledge here. You used, to, you used to pretend like you didn't follow it anymore. I, you know, I read the front page of Life Run every day. I think, that, I think that's a story, right? I mean, how, there's been a lot of guys now that have really excelled in the fifth year. Are there as many people excelling from non-Ivy schools going somewhere else? Like, are there kids from Oregon that do a fifth year at LSU? Or th- does that happen? Or is it really more like an Ivy League phenomenon because there's no redshirt? They would, yeah, they would never go to another school. If you're a, if you're at Oregon and you're doing well, you're just going to take your fifth year at Oregon. You're not going to go to freaking LSU. Yeah, John said if you're at Oregon, you just stay at Oregon. <laughs> you don't go to LSU. But maybe now with the transfer portal, more people, you'll see it. I mean, you've seen like what Sabrina Sutherland? She did it, but that was Georgetown. So that's kind of Ivy League light. What do you think about this idea first? First, hey, Richard. All right, get rid of Chris. Robert says, "Get rid of Chris." Chris, any final final comments? I think that uh, that is an underutilized tool, right? If your kid has the opportunity to go four years somewhere and do a fifth year somewhere else, like what a cool life experience! All right, I'm out. All right, thanks. Bye. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Special, totally random guest call from Running with the Buffaloes author, Chris Lear. Seriously, if you have not read Running with the Buffaloes, you need to buy it. One of the best running books of all time. 
insider, I mean, people may not know Chris's whole story. He's my college roommate at Princeton. He's from New Jersey. His dad was a big Seton Hall fan, so that's why he knew Lyles' dad. Also, obviously, that's why he's mentioning William Polson, who was a Princeton runner, is now running as Arizona State and the Pac-12 champion in the 1500. Prince Chris also was high school friends with Jason Vigilante, the Princeton distance coach. It's all about friends for Chris. But um, what was I going to ask? I started to ask a question, John, and then when I said to get Chris off, I guess nobody remembers. So what were we talking about before we were receiving the unexpected call? Who knows, Robert, what you're thinking about? But one other prominent name in Shanghai was Sydney McLaughlin, the Diamond League debut of her. Is that correct? Yep. Unlike Noah Lyles, she is not undefeated in the Diamond League, suffering a loss in the 400 meters, respectable second-place finish. Many people are banking on her to be, I don't know if it's fair to say, like the next Allison Felix in the sport, but she got a ton of money to turn pro. Um, but from New Balance, known as a 400-meter hurdler, but for her to become a name, she's got to be running in the relays, running in the 400. Second in the Diamond League still pretty good. I mean, that'll put you in the USA Relay team all the time. So any thoughts of Sydney's debut? I thought it was really good. She lost by – she ran 50.78, which her PR is 50.07, so it's not that close. But for her first opener, she's flying halfway around the world to China for this race – she only lost by 0.13 of a second to Selwa Eid Nasser, who is a 49 low woman. She was the second, she's the world championship silver medalist. She was really winning a lot of diamond leagues last year. Only Shawnee Miller Weibo is really better at the 400 than Nasser is. So to run Nasser that close and to leave the rest of the field in the dust, I mean, third place was over half a second behind McLaughlin. And McLaughlin beat the US champion, Shakim at Wembley, by. Almost two seconds. Guy Wimbley had a very poor race, running fifty-two sixty-nine for eighth. But you know, I, I I think yeah, you would in an ideal world you'd like the time to be a little faster. But the fact that she was so close to NASA, I thought really good. And if McLaughlin, you know, she, being that close to NASA, you could be a medal threat. There's probably only one medal open in the four hundred because NASA and Weibo Miller Weibo are so good. But I thought it was a really good run for Sydney. It was interesting to me because when I saw the time, I'm like 50.65 won the race. Like that's slow for the Diamond League. I was like, what I, what I make of this? Like the fact that she's so close to Nasser is a good sign. But the fact that I didn't think the time was that impressive. But then the post-race comments were interesting. I mean, McLaughlin's like, look, I'm happy. I, I ran close to my PR. I mean, she thought 0.7 was close to it. So she was, it's her, you know, basically her flat open 400 season opener. So um the exact quote was i felt good to run close to my pb this is my first time in shanghai and i like the city but i nasser was sort of not happy she thought i would say 50 50 you know today was just okay because that's the slowest time i mean nasser never runs that slow i mean she never i mean she ran one race last year in jordan in like 52 seconds that she won but you know one thing when i was doing the research for that race and writing the recap of it was we're sort of like in a really great era for women's 400. I mean, we have two really good runners. I mean, Nasser lost once all year. Miller Weibo never loses, except she did lose at Worlds <laughs> in 2017. But she was undefeated last year, I think, in everything, right? 200 and 400. Like, how good is she? She's exceptional. Uh, and But we saw, I mean, we talked about sprint doubles earlier. And Miller Weibo... She ran the 200 and the 400 at Worlds in 2017. She didn't win either of them. And it's just hard to 
you get in those championship environment, even for someone as good as Shawnee Miller Weibo, it's not easy to pull off those those races or those doubles. So I think yeah, Miller Weibo versus NASA is going to be great theater again. I also like how they're just totally you know different from each other in terms of the way they're built. I mean, Shawnee Miller Weibo is very tall. She's exactly what you would picture for sort of a sprinter. She just looks like she was born to run uh, and. Sal Nasa is a lot shorter and she sort of just zooms around the track like like that. But I think it's great contrast in styles. It's really, uh, or body types at least, it's very interesting to see uh, those two square off. So that's going to be a good rivalry. And if we get Sydney, I don't think Sydney's going to be doing the 400 at Worlds or Olympics just yet. But this bodes well for her hurdles, which uh, we're still waiting on her Diamond League debut in that event. Well, I'd mentioned Allison Felix. And not that Allison Felix isn't a great athlete, but I think there aren't that many women athletes that you can promote as like big time face of American women's sports. You know, we got the soccer players. Nobody pays attention to the WNBA. You got tennis. No one really paid attention to pro golf. So I think the 404 helps you just to, to, to rack up those gold medal counts, kind of like Allison Felix does on the on both relays for her. But looking at Shawnee Miller, Weibo's stats, I mean, she didn't really lose it all in 2017 either. Like she lost one 200 at pre, but I mean, she lost a hundred, which she never runs, but she was like basically had one loss the entire season and she was third in the 200 and fourth in the 400. So kind of interesting on, on that front, but well, her thing is she doesn't, her problem in those races, in the Olympic final and in the 400 final at worlds is she misjudged her effort. She would go out so hard that she was totally out of gas by the end. And remember her just staggering basically down the home street in London lost in 2017. And then the Olympics, she fell at the line, not because she, meant to really dive because she was just totally spent so the way she runs the event if she misjudges her her pacing it could be very interesting in the home straight do y'all realize how fast she's run this year does anyone have any idea what she's done this year shawnee miller weebo yeah i wasn't even aware she had been racing yet i haven't i can't remember her results she has a result from gainesville for is this for a relays yeah no the tom jones memorial game I don't know if it's for, for to realize or not. April 27th, 49.05 for 400. Oh, crap. Yeah, now I remember. Because Norman ran really fast, and then she ran really fast. Now I remember. Yeah, that's that's a, that's outstanding for some random you know, college meet in April. She opened up 0.08 off of her PB. I think you'd want to go to Shanghai and just get 10 grand, but hey. Yeah, but if she, I mean, you got to think of it from her perspective. She basically, any diamond league she enters there's either going to be a 200 or 400 most likely and she can win either of those so sort of she can pick and choose you don't want to re-racing every single week but there's been so much sprint talk and we don't talk about the distances anything else we need to say about the distances in shanghai or what about uh occidental we had the usatf distance classic or the big news folks regarding the 2020 olympic gold medalist and the women's marathon let's talk oxy a little bit Unless you want to go, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I, I, no, I think we should do listener audio because it's related to Shanghai. You know, if you wanted to watch the Shanghai meet, it was a little bit difficult. Obviously, it's on at a weird time, but if you want to watch pro track and field in America, your options, well, you also have to have USATF plus TV subscription, but mainly NBC Gold subscription. It's pay-per-view. Most of the meets... The Diamond League meets are also on either the Olympic Channel or, or NBCSN, so regular cable for most people, for a lot of people at least. But this one wasn't on TV. The meet was Saturday morning in the U.S., and it wasn't on TV on the Olympic Channel until 8 p.m. on Sunday. 
up against Game of Thrones, which is kind of nuts. So, I mean, NBC soccer, it, soccer was over. There was no soccer in NBCSN this weekend. You had the debut of Lyles versus Coleman. This just shows how off the radar is because I feel like you could hype this up, talk about it, America Sprint Stars, here they are. It would help build stuff for the Olympics next time around. But none of that was done. We got some listener audio here. This guy will get a free pair of Hoka One One Carbon X shoes. The shoes are out. Hoka's been sponsoring our expiration of the Ultra Marathon all month, and we're giving away 10 pairs of shoes. They actually don't have to be pairs of Carbon X because actually now the Carbon X is on back order till June 1st. But the listener audio, here it is. It's pretty long. We're going to do it in two segments. Hey, guys. Freddie here, longtime fan. Um, you guys do have minority uh, fans. Just want to let you guys know I'm a minority in every way. Uh, according to the uh, boards, I don't make two hundred thousand dollars. I don't run sub fifteen. I don't have a, a model wife, and I'm not white. <laughs> I mean, there it is, proof right there. Let's run.com. Not a racist cesspool. I guess, unfortunately, not everyone makes two hundred grand a year and has a hot wife, but. Any comments? What are you talking about? I have like three wives. I make a million dollars a year. I don't know about you guys. He didn't say that his wife wasn't extremely attractive. He just said she wasn't a model. She probably is a PhD from Harvard and is a professor. Like, uh, I think we were misinterpreting what he said. Okay, we'll continue on. Anyway, uh, big props with the podcast. It's a great new addition. You know, we enjoy reading the the page, but it's great to hear you guys talk and debate and stuff like that. Give us the news. So, great addition. I think you guys should name it Let's Run Podcast. You guys already have a big, uh, recognizable name. So, why not just name it Let's Run Podcast or something like that? Um, Anyway, just wanted to say that um, lately I feel a little depressed that distance running is dying or is dead. In the past year on ESPN, I've seen bowling. I've seen drone racing. I've seen uh, CrossFit. I even saw uh, them showing gaming, like kids playing video games. I've seen them uh, broadcast a cornhole tournament. Yes, cornhole. Yet I can't find a Diamond League mat, uh, track meet. I can't find, like, you know, when the big marathon's happening, I usually have to go to the boards, find some obscure link in Russia or something. Um, and you guys, you know, get me the link, but yeah, that's pretty sad that you have to do that to, you know, find a, a great race or something. I mean, he's got a good point, but as we said, it's on NBC gold, but you're, if you're looking up for ESPN for track, it's not on there. NBC is the broadcast network of the Olympics and most of the diamond league with an NBCSN or the Olympic channel. So right now, I guess ESPN has NCAA track and field. And ESPN Plus, folks, has the Ivy League Network with yours truly. Please don't bash my employer, Weldon. Although I think actually the Ivy League pays my my lucrative salary. Yeah, but I think he has a larger point here. And just people want to be able to find these meets and watch them live. And Sydney McLaughlin last week, you know, they had that interview with her. And, you know, there's a few questions with her on her Twitter feed. And the person doing the interview asked her, so where can we watch you compete in Shanghai? And she said essentially basically said i don't know i will check on post on my instagram later and let you guys know and it's fair because one sydney is this 19 year old woman who doesn't know how to watch the diamond league i think that's sort of an indictment of just people her age probably just don't know how to watch this thing and two 
she couldn't say a television network because it wasn't on TV. She, you had to watch it with this $75 NBC Gold subscription. And three, I think it shows you that she's never watched a Diamond League meet on herself on TV. Right. And she's someone with an interest in, you know, not every track athlete is a diehard track nerd, but she's someone who's interested in track and field at the very least. And she's never been compelled to watch a meet. But guys, real quick, John, while we're talking about broadcasting and networks, we ended last week's podcast. Well, before we had the bonus Jim Walmsley podcast, by the way, great interview. Well, I enjoyed it. But we ended last week's podcast with my play by play four by four announcing. And, and John was giving me a hard time saying, you know, at the end of last week's podcast, but then I got a text like a few hours later, he listened to the audio. John, do you have an apology? It was really good, right? I give Robert credit. I forgot how good him and Bill Spaulding were on the call and the excitement level brought me back to watching the video of that race of Gabby Thomas's amazing ankle leg in the four by four at Haps last year in Philly. So I'll give credit to Robert. I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a cool way to end the podcast. I don't need think we need to make a habit out of ending the podcast with Robert's calls, but I, I greatly enjoyed it, and it was a really good call of the race. Maybe Spalding and Robert should do a highlight show at NBCSN on the Diamond League. We should. We can replace Mosbach. Mosbach, you're a Princeton guy. You've had your time in the shame. I'm coming for you, Craig. I'm going to take your job. I have no conflict of interest with Nike. Problem is, Robert lives in Baltimore. I'm much closer to the NBCSN studio. So, we're in Stanford. Yeah. And then, John, I, I could probably parlay that into getting on the soccer coverage as well. I mean, what would you do, John, if I was if I became the just the studio guy for soccer and track and field in America? Oh, that'd be bad. You would have you and Rebecca Lowe, two Palace fans on the Crystal Palace fans on the soccer table. That, that's too 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 many, in my opinion. Even though Rebecca Lowe does a great job, but no, here's my other thing about Diamond League. For races like Sydney and Noah Lyles, you know, the sprints, people can just watch this stuff on Twitter. The races are not even a minute long for anything. You know, any race below 800 meters is not even a minute long. It's very easy to follow the sport by just seeing sort of a video clip like Lyles and Coleman. All you need to do, find this thing on Instagram or Twitter or something like that. I think I would hope that the sport would be able to lev that, leverage that a little bit into popularity if we just hey, did you guys see the Lyles Coleman race? Oh, no, take 10 seconds to watch it. Here's what happened. And you can sort of get people interested that way. I feel like there might be an opportunity there for people to promote it. If you get some, you know, you need some people with big time follower numbers. But if you get someone that was those celebrity fans tweeting it out and saying like, hey, look at these races, I, you know, it's an opportunity. I mean, that's true. But also you can watch anything online now, right? Like you can watch a clip of the Kentucky Derby. It doesn't mean to become a fan of horse racing after that. So I think we do need to build storylines. There needs to be some sort of, I don't know what the term is even, bumper programming with with highlights and highlight shows and uh, that sort of stuff. If we just kind of prop it up on NBC Gold and for the hardcore, like, okay, where do we go from there? What if, I just don't understand what the people at like USATF do all day. Like, shouldn't they make it? Like, we have our own podcast. Could we make, if I had resources, could we make a TV show? I don't know. I, when I used to follow poker, poker, there's some pretty good poker video podcasts made by a couple guys, kind of like a PTI type thing. Maybe we should try to copy it, Robert. Any Let's Runners out there want to help us? Email us. Anyway, the, the listener audio is not done. This guy's got some tips, um, some more stuff. You don't just win the shoes for coming on. and well, We need minority viewership, so that was good. He, he was checking some boxes for us and knowing some inside jokes, that sort of stuff. 
But just bitching about TV? No, no, that's not it. We've got more here. Here it is. Lastly, I love the idea about the hot takes. I think ESPN and those kind of places do a great job of like LeBron versus MJ. You know, you guys can have Rub versus Frank Shorter and you guys take different sides and, you know, debate or whatever. I think that'd be cool. Um, we kind of like the behind the scenes. We need more of John's love life. Yes, we need to know more about John's love life. Let's have that segment. Did you guys hear that? No, audio cut out. Couldn't hear what he was saying. But how do we talk about that? Can we talk about the lack thereof? Or? Robert, don't get yourself fired. Be careful what you say here. Come out, come, what comes out of your mouth. Just try to be professional. Yeah, I was gonna, I'm glad that the, that the listener wants to talk about John's love life because I noticed this when I was single. The married guys want to talk about single guys' love lives. They think it's so exciting to be single and out in the field, of the battlefield, as they like to say. But I was going to say that John was not working this week, and he was at a bachelor party, folks. He was not at his own bachelor party. So, ladies, he still is available. It's hard to believe that somebody with a master's degree, smart, witty, athletic as John, could still be out there. But it is. So if you're lonely at home, don't give up hope. John's still available with people. All right. We got a little more. I assume John's not going to comment on that. Wife audio. Yeah, we need the wife audio. That's also pretty cool. Take a page out of the ringer, like, you know, Bill's podcast from the ringer. Um, they'll play like um, he'll talk to his daughter. Like the behind the scenes kind of stuff. So uh, just my two cents. Keep it up. Uh, love the website. Uh, thanks for all the content. There we, uh, we go. Listener audio of the week. Winner of a free Hoka Project Carbon X shoes. You suck up to us, we give you free gear. Yes. If you'd like to submit audio, you can call 1-844-LET'S-RUN. I, I wish I could show, share John's face. Again, we can see John's face right now. Picture's worth a thousand words. He's turning red. I think bemused is the expression. I mean, I would... I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't call it red, but... Well, I mean, what do you want me to tell you about my love life? There's, you know, it's not much going on at the moment, I'm afraid. And it's like, if there's an update to share, I'll share it. But this is a track and field podcast, guys. Maybe we'll just share about your life. John John was a winner this week in Atlantic City. I'll just leave it at that. No, nothing big from what I understand, but a little sports betting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Craps. Blackjack. Played, uh, yeah. Had some good times. But, we, you know, the listener wants more stuff, so... Hot take, Galen Rupp versus Frank Shorter in the marathon. John, go. No, I like that. Here's the hot take, because we haven't had our Alberto Salazar segment, and we need to talk about Gwen Jorgensen, folks. I kind of made a joke about it earlier, but she has had the same surgery as Galen Rupp. Achilles surgery? No, well, let's correct that. It's not the exact same surgery, because with Rupp's surgery, they disattached and then reattached the Achilles tendon with Gwen's surgery, it was the same issue, Haglund's deformity, uh, sort of this bony growth on the heel, but they left the Achilles tendon alone, is what she said in her video, which is very funny at the end, if you should watch it. They had some a clip of her zonked out on medication after her surgery, she was just saying some funny things. So definitely worth the watch there on her YouTube channel. But yeah, it's a different, different surgery, but still, she's going to be on the shelf for a while, said probably won't be back to full training in three or four months. I mean... Has this extinguished the flame on her gold medal dreams in Tokyo next year? Um, I think they already were extinguished, but uh, making the team is 
seems almost impossible to me now. I kind of wondered what she'd been up to because we hadn't seen anything. She didn't do a spring marathon. So she, she was battling injury. This explains a lot, but it just shows also how little time she had really to do this. And sort of everyone assumes like, oh, she's so good. She'll get a marathon in. She'll get another one in. She'll keep improving. She'll have a shot at making the team. One, some of that may have been fantasy to begin with. You just don't know if she's going to go from being like a, say she was like a, about a 230 equivalent to you know where you can go from there when you dedicate yourself to running full time. But yeah, you throw in an injury or two and it's almost impossible, especially making the U.S. Women's Olympic Marathon team, which is very hard. I hope that she's back in the trials. I, she's still someone that I'm very interested in seeing running. I think that the gold medal goal was a pipe dream to begin with, but uh, maybe 2024. Do you guys think this gives her an out in some ways? Like, oh, I didn't make it, but I got injured. In some ways, like, let's her save a little face, and then she can focus on 2024? I guess. I mean, I, I was one of the people who said when she turned to the marathon, she had a 0% chance of winning the gold in Tokyo and yeah, I don't, I never, so I never thought her chances were good, but I think if she was only moving to the marathon with the goal of winning the Olympic gold marathon, if that's if it, Olympic gold, if that was the only thing that was driving her decision to move the marathon, it was a bad decision, but I don't think that's the case. I think she's always said running was her favorite. She liked, she triathlon was okay. She, Cause she was, you know, the best at it and she was an Olympic gold medalist, but running was her real love. And so she's doing something that she loves. And yeah, running injuries are a part of running. But I think, you know, and she had one rough, she had a rough marathon in Chicago. But if she can get healthy and really get back to loving the sport and enjoying it, then this is still going to be a positive thing for her. I just think if you're saying the only way her transition to the marathon is going to be a success is if she, you know, makes the team or gets an Olympic medal, I, I think that's a, that's not how I would judge it. I would judge it more from a personal satisfaction than, Hopefully, she eventually gets competitive in in the event. Yeah, good good points, John. I mean, I if we're talking about the hot take, somebody in the message board was like, "How many people has Jerry Schumacher ruined?" So I think the hot take is hot debate should be who's ruined more more talent, Jerry Schumacher or Alberto Salazar. And I'm kidding when I ask that question. We're not going to discuss that because I'm like, we're going to blame Jerry Schumacher for this? That's ridiculous. This woman had like what 18 months to try to make the Olympic team. Of course, she's got to ramp the mileage up. And that might lead to injury, but if she sounds like this might have been a problem, she's, I mean, Galen Rupp had the same issue. So, I mean, when someone gets injured, you don't just blame the coach. This is absurd. You know, I mean, when you have high profile athletes, you're going to have some high profile bombs. I mean, Mary Kane, Franklin Sanchez for Alberto. I don't know who the, who are the high profile bombs for Jerry then? Who are all the people getting injured? I mean, Solinsky, yes, he tore, didn't he trip on his dog, tore his hamstring off his bone or something? Who else? Well, the entire team right now seems to be off the shelf a little bit, I would say. Uh, I guess uh, Derek's had some Achilles issues. Well, I mean, Shalane just had surgery. Jager and Centrowitz haven't competed this season. Oh, Infeld right. is, Emily Infeld's been injury-prone her entire career, but you've got to think about, like... But the whole team's injured. How am I that bad? Fire Jerry. Uh, Nike, Capriati, fire him. But, the, I mean, the, there's some nuance here, though, like... Infeld has been injury prone her entire career. I don't. Th- I think that's just how she is. I don't think, and I think they've done a good job of making sure that she's ready when it counts. I mean, she medaled at the World Championship. She made the Olympics. She ran well in London, twenty seventeen, and then Shalane has been pretty healthy, basically her entire career. Like she's she's an older runner now, and sometimes you get injuries after being in the sport at such a high level that she was for such a long time. So I don't think that's totally. I don't think you can fault Jerry for that either. Now. Maybe some of the other athletes, I don't know, but 
I'm not going to speculate about it. I, I don't know exactly how are they pushing and how much this is all related. So I'm not going to really speculate about that stuff, but uh, it's interesting. I'm interested to see when some of these guys are going to come back. I mean, Jager and Centroids, we haven't heard anything about these guys. Are they going to be racing anytime soon? What's up with them? I, I think it would be interesting to know. Maybe I need to start asking some questions and doing my journalistic job to f- figure that stuff out. Yes, John, do your job. Thank you. We still got two months, over two months to USA's, but now it's not that far off anymore, right? Like it's, Worlds is a long way off, but USA's, once you start getting, you know, that 10 week window, you better start getting ready. You better, you can't be doing nothing now. So. Yeah, no, people, this is about the time of year people are going to be opening up. Like if you were running USA's in a normal year, they're in the end of June, you would usually be debuting around May 1st or so. And. So now they're at the end of July, you'd be debuting around June 1st. Well, June 1st is only a week and a half away. So most of the people you would think if they're healthy, they would have they would race by, you know, the first week of June or so. Well, Robert talked about firing Nike. So should we turn to the Alicia Montano uh, op-ed in the New York Times? Essentially, she wanted to fire Nike or Nike fired her and it's gotten a lot of discussion and Nike sort of changed the policy or said it had previously changed the policy because of it. But I'll look at the exact title of, of the op-ed, but essentially it was, go ahead, Robert. Yeah, they did a video too. So it, I think they did, it just depends on which way you, you first read it. They produced a really good video. I actually thought it was like a Nike ad. It was so well produced. It's like five minutes of Matanyo talking about going for your dreams. And then but the, yeah, the actual op-ed was more about like how Nike says, you know, dare to be great, just do it. It's her, Alyssa Montano's point was accepting unless you want to get pregnant. So her complaint was, as a Nike athlete, if you're a woman and you got pregnant, what happened was they would they didn't actually fire you, which was kind of the way it's been interpreted. They would pause your contract while you were pregnant and not pay you, and then when you came back, you came back to where you were. But there's a lot of pressure to get back because if you don't keep your world ranking up, you can get reduced really quickly. The thing was very powerful. I mean, my wife, you know, other people re- rewrote it, even if you don't have a New York Times subscription like Yahoo and all these other people wrote it. I mean, my wife was like, did you hear about this thing with Montano and the pregnancy? She's like, my favorite shoes are Nikes, but I'm not going to buy Nike next time. I go out and buy a pair of running shoes. My wife's not a big runner, but it really struck her. I mean, she really... You know, it's really hard to be a, a working mom and, and paid maternity leave um, is something that's really sort of crucial for people. Anyways, so there's a lot of, I, I think that she got a lot of traction on this and, and for, you know, a, a, a good reason, obviously. And, and I, you know, as someone who's a new father, I think I think about it differently than I would have maybe five years ago. You know, there's been some message boards, a few people on the message board are like, well, why would you sign this contract? You know, and, and well, you don't you don't have an option, right? I mean, that's how the contracts were. I think as an athlete, as, as a woman, she did the right thing. How do you get a company to change its ways? In today's age, you bring a lot of social media pressure, media pressure, you expose what they're doing. And Nike does a lot to say that they're marketing to women and presenting this woman-friendly image. And they had some, you know, they got rid of some executives who weren't behaving properly a couple years ago, some men and that was related to women. So if they're this woman-friendly brand and you're like, hey, I get pregnant and you since I think, you know, then the question was, how was it portrayed? My contract gets put on pause, whatever. If people don't like that, then Nike needs to change its ways. 
but then it becomes sort of a new, new, more nuanced discussion, right? Like only four states in America have paid maternity leave. A lot of companies do, but Nike's a big company. And then they're like, well, these are independent contractors. And then people are like, well, they should be treated like employees. They should get it. And then others are like, well, if you get pregnant, you don't get like, no one gets paid maternity. You get maternity leave once you have the baby, you know, maybe right before the baby, then a, a couple months after or a few months after. Like, so as an athlete, you get a full paid pregnancy off and then recovery after that. Where does that stop? That's going to cause these companies to stop signing women who might get pregnant or a small contract. So there's all these unintended consequences that might come up as a result of a new policy. But I think society, as a society, I think the reception was for most people was, was pretty positive. It's like, Hey, somebody gets pregnant in your Nike, a big company, you need to treat them well. And women shouldn't be treated differently than men. But having said that, right, let's say you're pregnant and you've got you missed the New York City Marathon one year. They're not going to give you an appearance fee because you you didn't run it. So the it's not equal, right? Like a woman who has a baby, especially as an, an athlete woman who misses events and that sort of stuff, and runners are independent contractors, and you're going to miss events that you can't run and make money at, they're not going to pay you because you didn't make it. Like you get paid to show up and run, that sort of stuff. So – it's just one of those things. It's unfair. And if the shoe companies that which provide the bulk of the salary for the stars, at least if they start treating the women better, you know, I think real quickly, Montano got results. So good for her. Yeah. The comments I made on the message board, I, you know, someone said, why would she sign this contract? You didn't have to sign the contract. If it wasn't then you know, whatever. And I just said, I, I posts like this are stupid. We as a society should be fighting for paid maternity leave for women. You know, and, and so, then someone responded to that and said, I'm with Matanya, earlier had said, I'm with Matanya and any reasonable person should be. People sign bad contracts all the time, particularly if one or two companies are the only opportunities available for you. Thanks to more companies offering sponsorships, Nike now has to improve the terms they are putting in their contracts. Matanya and many other athletes have to put off pregnancy if they want to be competitive, which is an understandable choice and sacrifice. But if a company who cares about its employees should not demonize something like childbearing. So I really agree with that. First of all, you know, they can get in the legal ass. She's not an employee of Nike. She's a contractor. And also I think Nike's getting a bad rap here because she kind of Nike basically was with Adidas for part of this. And she mentioned Adidas Asics. briefly in the, I mean, excuse me, ASICS. And they basically had this, I think the same, I think it was pretty standard across the industry. So N Nike gets more publicity, um, you know, sort of the leader of, of, of the sports thing. Um, but it is nuanced. I mean, I think that, you know, people are like, what happens if someone is pregnant and has six kids? I just don't think that's realistic to ask that, that question. There was one part of the video that I didn't really, I don't know. I, I, again, I'm all for Montano. I'm all for the leave. I want to start with that. But there was one part of the video that I, I didn't love. Um, and she said the, the exact quote was, I don't know if you want to play the audio well done or not, but you know, the exact quote is, the sports companies allow for men to have a full career. And when a woman decides to have a baby, it pushes women out at the prime, the sports companies. And I'm like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, to me, that was like a little misleading, you know, like the reality is, and I don't know, I, I only have a son, but if I have a daughter, I don't, but I think all children can learn this in reality it doesn't matter if you're a man 
or a woman. You can't have it all. There's only so much time in the day. So it's really hard to be an amazing, to have an amazing hobby and to have an amazing job and to be an amazing family person. Like normally people specialize in certain areas. It's very hard to have, like they say as a college track coach, it's really hard for an athlete to have, be great at school, be great at social life and be great at academics. Well, the same thing true is in the real world. It's hard to be great at everything. And I don't know how you're pushed as a professional women's track athlete, a professional athlete, period. You have a very narrow window between 20 and 40 is when you're going to be an exceptional athlete. So if you have a baby as a woman, that's going to take part of your career. There's just, you can't get around that unless you have a surrogate give birth for you. There's no way of getting around that fact. So I don't know. I think if I had a daughter, I'd be like, you know, you have to think about these things. You have a body and it's only going to be able to produce babies for a certain period of time. If you want to have those babies yourself, now surrogacy is a, is a different thing, obviously, but that was the only quibble I had with it. I mean, I do think that, you know, you're not pushed out of your prime. You chose to have the baby in your prime. It's just whether you're getting paid during that thing. I think the solution is still pay them your contract through the pregnancy and then if they come back and need a new contract, well, then you guys can negotiate that. Yeah, well, Stephanie Bruce, you know, was on the podcast two weeks ago, and she had her first kid. And then the second one was a surprise. And pretty much every kid you have, even if you recover quickly, right? Like the quickest recovery ever would be like one year off. As a woman athlete, let's say you have 15 years in your prime, each kid, one year is gone. So hopefully your company can keep paying you and sponsoring you, but like the performances you would have achieved, all the prize money you would have won, all the things you would have done, all the Wimbledons you would have won, the U.S. Opens, that sort of stuff, that thing is gone. You know, Serena Williams has come back, but there's a couple of majors that she just wasn't at because she was having a baby. So there's going to be sacrifice. It's it's not f- fair. Men don't have to do that. Men just keep winning majors. You're Roger Federer. You, keep, you win one, you win the next one. You don't have to miss any unless you get injured. Right. Women have these amazing bodies that are, that are able to produce babies that and don't. But right, it's not fair. It's not the same. And there's no way of getting around that. And I think that gets to some of this, I don't know, like we ha- we need to acknowledge that there is a difference between a man's and woman's body and have different things. I, I think some of this honestly gets into the whole caster Semenya debate, like if, in the transgender debate. Like if we don't acknowledge that there's differences here, I don't know. Like we want to treat people everywhere and everyone have the same opportunity. And that's why I think that we do need, you know, paid maternity leave. I, I think that that would be beneficial for society, but I, I can understand why some people, I don't know. It bothers them, I guess, but I don't think that it should. All right, guys, we promised Iowa high school track and field talk. It is time for Iowa high school track and field talk. We're talking the boys one, a 3,200 meter run at the Iowa state meet. And what happened here, if you didn't hear about it, they rang the bell a lap early. They rang it after six laps instead of seven. And that meant that most of the runners finished running after seven laps instead of eight. But there were some runners who ran the entire distance. And Joe Anderson of George Little Rock was the first person across the line after 3,200 meters. He ran 9.56. But after an official review, the state title was awarded to Will Rhoda of Lamar's Gellin because he was the person who crossed the finish line first after seven laps. And really, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a ridiculous situation that they would award the winner of 
the gold medals, you know, the state championship to a guy who only ran 2,800 meters when they're handing it out for 3,200 meters. And eventually we've had this decision. Finally, Sandy has prevailed. They've reversed this decision or they've at least decided to, they've named co-champions. So Rhoda, who they named the seventh, who was the first guy across the line after seven laps, they've said he can keep his state title, but we're also awarding Anderson, who was the man who finished up first after eight laps. He's going to be the co-champion, and now the, the orders are reflecting the order of finish after eight laps. I mean, to me, this is a whole lot of hullabaloo for what I think should be a simple option here. Yes, the guy rang the bell lap early. That's bad, but everyone knows you have to finish eight laps. If the kids were finishing with like eight minutes, something on the clock, you should know that's too fast. It should go by order of finish after eight laps, and I, I think it's ridiculous that we were loading the seven-lap guy the championship. The, John, this is a tough one for me. I agree with you. I the one I got that thread hot because I changed the title to make it. I thought the guy who finished eight laps should have been the champion. If you're only going to have one champion, it should have been him. But this is a really tough situation because not only did they ring the bell wrong, but the announcer who was actually I think it's his name's Mike J, but last name definitely J. He does all these meets all over the country. He's one of the best announcers in the country. He was really hyping up like this is the last lap, go for it. So you hear that. I mean, maybe you're a runner and you think. Maybe I got the laps wrong. They rang the bell. The announcer's going crazy. So you put the athletes in a tough spot. Now, the guy who won after eight laps, he said, I knew that they rang the bell early, and I saw the other guys kicking in. I stayed close to them, and then they stopped, and I kept going. So he did it right. He knew that there was eight laps, and he won. I think some of the other runners did finish at seven laps and then keep eventually kept going. And the reason why they handed it is they said most runners, they thought, kicked it in. So I'm just like – no, the guy that knew it was eight laps should win. But the real, actually, if you look at the rule book, I think that the solution is supposed to rerun the race. And someone said that, you know, the only solution maybe moving forward would be like, we need to have a set rule. Like, if the bell rings, that's it. One lap to go. Ooh, I don't know about that. I mean, it's not going to happen very often. I I don't mind the co-champion saying, I think saying he can keep his state title I don't in this this is a unique situation unique situation. I don't totally mind that. And actually he had a statement, uh Anderson, who was the guy who finished uh eight laps, and he said he yeah, he was the first, the guy who finished first after eight laps. He said, Being stripped of my first ever state title hurts a lot, but my identity does not come from the trophies that I have won or the ones that have been taken away. It comes from who I am in Christ. I ran the absolute hardest I could. I'm proud of that race. At the end of the day, it's not about how we respond when life goes great. It's about how we respond when bad things happen to us. Congrats to Will. He ran a great race. Now, that statement probably came that came directly after the race. I think it's pretty classy for a guy who actually well, should have been Very classy. That would have been a rate. Yeah. But I'm glad to see that now he's actually got the recognition and the state title that he deserves. What, what do you guys think? Should we sponsor a Let's Run? We fly to Iowa. Uh, these guys aren't doing postseason meets. We can hold like another meet. Get everyone there together. Do it during USA's. The grudge match. Iowa State Class 1A re-race. Pay-per-view. What are their names again? Joe Anderson was the guy who was one after he ran the he was first place after 3200 meters and will Roder was the guy who was first after 2800 meters we're supposed to do more hot takes 1844 let's run anderson or Roder? who you got yeah i thought the, the anderson kid was amazingly classy what a statement i mean at that age just sort of just say like hey man like this isn't who i am you know his 
he's a religious guy. His being comes from Christ, but he's like grounded in something bigger than running. Whereas so many distance runners, oh my gosh, like their, their whole identity is tied up to how they do in a race. And just in general, like, uh, I don't know, it shows great perspective by this kid to realize that there's a lot more out there. We need to shut this podcast down. I think Walden's going to have an interview with Ben Rosario coming up. But um, one final thought, which would get a higher, bring in more revenue thing? This pay-per-view from the high school rematch. Whatever the second option is, that's going to be it. Well, I was going to set up, you know, we talked about how we, I had to talk about how, how the raccoon has been caught. At least one has been caught. But I don't want to seal off the porch. So talking to the experts and reading a lot's wrong, people say you got to prevent them from going back underneath your porch. But I don't want to seal off the porch. Like if they're down there right now, like they'll be stuck. So I was thinking of setting up like a night camera, like a wise camera. They're amazing. W-Y-Z-E. And getting an extension cord. It's got night vision. I could just put, there's two poles underneath my porch. If I set it up tonight, wouldn't that be like a live pay-per-view? And then if the raccoon comes out, I know he's, he's in there and I don't want to seal it. But if he doesn't come out, I know no one's in there and I can seal it up and be riveting. I take it back. Live pay-per-view footage of the exterior of Robert's house. I couldn't imagine something less interesting. Why would anyone pay for that? Johnny, riveting. You never know what's going to happen. I don't really mean pay. Like, what if it was just a free stream? People might, yeah, people might just be looking. You're cultivating stalkers here, Rob. It would be better with no archive. Like, if there was no archive and it was just a free stream, so you you couldn't miss it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you archive, you know, oh, you can go back and anything happens. But no, it's only live. In Norway, people watch for hours. Like, yes, they put a camera on a train and it just drives around, and people watch it, or like they watch it. Millions of people watch it. So this could be the next big thing. We didn't do deleted thread of the week, Robert, but there is a deleted thread on there. Rojo, please help wildlife emergency. So there's a market for this, and I, Malmo, please stop deleting this stuff. These are good threads. I was offered a job by the pest control company. The guy could not trap the raccoon. By the way. I've learned people have made, there might have been some violations of state law. I do have a permit. It's 9267, Maryland permit 9267 to have a trap for a raccoon. It is illegal to relocate a trapped animal. It's, it's, it's a federal law. They're trying to stop, they're trying to prevent rabies. I don't think that's going to really happen. They're going to eradicate rabies. So what happened to them? So I hope that the pest control guy doesn't get arrested because of my podcast. Robert, this guy has a duck nest in his front yard. Twelve eggs were in it. The mother duck was sitting on it. Now there are nine eggs and the mother is gone. What do I do? Is the mother gone forever? Did the owls, I, I heard the other night, kill it? Should I hire someone to sit on the nest? How do I save the other nine ducks? This was an amazing threat, and this should have been kept up. I know. It's, it's, now the, it's probably too late. Now the ducks are dead. Thank you, Malmo. The ducks are dead. Other deleted threads, for 15 years, Let's Run has been the only staple in my life. Could help this guy out, deleted for no reason. There's just a lot of stuff out here. You know, I mean, obviously, there's some spam posts, but some of these... I vow to, my vow for the next week is to improve the moderation. I've been trying to meet with my the guy who runs the Orioles website. I said for over a year I'll be going to meet. Actually, for like three years, I'd meet him. He moderates his, his, his Orioles forum very well, but I've never met with him. So that... John, please ask me next week if I set up a meeting with this guy. All right, we will do. So I think that does it. Stay tuned. We may have a podcast with Ben Rosario, coach of the Hoka NAZ Elite. His runners are firing on all cylinders right now. Men, women. Uh, oh, hey, we mentioned Stephanie Bruce early. 
earlier. Do you guys see that? Like a 20, nearly 30 second 5K PR? You come on this. Yeah, we didn't even mention Oxy, but yeah, she ran very well. The- Quick, 30 second Oxy rundown. Larry Lang, is he back? Yes or no? I say no, but it was a good run for him. He won the 5K easily in about 13.25. He's not back now, but he will be back, folks. He will be back. That's my take there. I think you should drop the Rosero thing as a separate podcast. I think these it's too much all in one podcast. All right. If you don't hear Ben Rosario after this, I'll be talking to him later today. <laughs> He'll be coming up in his own separate t- podcast. You never know. It's like a bonus thing, right? I mean, we did the Jim Walmsley separate. That thing's killing it. So until the Ben Rosario podcast comes out, this is Weldon Johnson signing off for Robert and Jonathan Galt. Thanks, guys. All right. I've got the pleasure to be joined by one of the hottest coaches in America right now, Ben Rosario, the coach of the Hoka One One NAZ Elite. Ben's team is pretty much on fire this spring. I may get these out of order, but first we had Scott Fobble run 209 at the Boston Marathon. Then we had, let's see, I think Kellen Taylor run 226 at the Prague Marathon. Actually, these are out of order, aren't they? Alephine first. Alephine, excuse me. Alephine run 226 PR at the Rotterdam Marathon. Then Kellen run 226 at the Prague Marathon. No, Alephine, then Fauble, then Kellen. Wow. See, it's just too much. <laughs> I mean, most recently, Stephanie Bruce win the national title in Pittsburgh in the half marathon. And then last weekend, she drops down and sets a 5K PR. Club record, right? You keep track of these. That's right. 1517. So, Ben, welcome welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me, and congrats and everything. Thanks for having me. Yeah, ha- happy to talk about it all. Yeah, do you just have to keep like a spreadsheet of all the success you're having? I'm, I'm, I'm impressed it's still in your head, though. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, we keep, keep track of everything, and it does just seem like everybody keeps one-upping each other, but that's good. That's part of the culture, and that's how it's been for a long time, and we do just keep, seem to, to keep improving. Yeah, I talked to Stephanie a couple weeks ago. She was on the podcast, and I got the impression that it is a true team. Like, there's a good environment, even like men's and women's. There's, a, it's not like the men are doing their own thing separate from the women. Everybody seemed to be very supportive and feeding off one another. It's- yeah, it's really good right now. The culture is really, really good. Um, you know, we had a meeting in, I guess it was March, that lasted about six hours, and we all we did was go over our culture and who we are and why we do what we do and why we believe in it and uh, who works for us and who doesn't. And uh, it was really very healthy. And we ended up creating about a 10 page culture deck uh, based off of that meeting. And uh, I just feel like everybody is really bought in and you know, that's what it takes. Oh, wow. What do you mean who works for us and who doesn't? What do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the things that came out of the meeting that was very freeing was that, look, we're not for everybody and that's totally okay. If, if somebody isn't, uh, doesn't work here, that doesn't mean they're a bad person or a bad athlete. It just means they don't work in our system and vice versa. It doesn't mean that our system is bad or I'm a bad coach or, you know, these folks are bad teammates. It's just the chemistry has to be right. And it's like any sport, right? Look, look at the Celtics. Look how terrible they were this year with Kyrie. Kyrie just wasn't a fit, you know? And so Kyrie Irving. So it, it destroyed the whole culture there and he needs to move on and they'll be good again when he's gone. And I'm sure he'll be good again somewhere else. It just wasn't a fit, you know? And so that's why in the vetting process now, it's so important to make sure that the person is going to really thrive in our system. Um, 
because the culture and the belief uh, and and what you talked about, just sort of the vibe is so vital to our success. So um, I guess that's what I mean. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And like Brad Stevens is a, well, he was regarded as like, you know, the wonder kid coach. Yeah. And just because one year he doesn't do well, doesn't mean he's a bad coach. And he'll probably think twice about who comes on, on the team next time or not. Yeah, I mean, Popovich is a great coach, but Kawhi Leonard didn't work there. So what? You know, it just it just wasn't a fit. You know, you move on and you you find the right fit. You know, the 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 turnover in all sports is is a constant process of like trying to get it right. You know, and um, I'm a big St. Louis Blues fan. They just made the Stanley Cup Finals. They were last in the league in January, but they had made a coaching change in November, and eventually that coaching change worked, and uh, everybody gelled, and now they're in the finals. So you know, it's just culture is very very important. Yeah, do you study non-running coaches? Yes, probably more so than running coaches. Yeah, for sure. I'm a big sports fan. All right, good. I mean, I, I, I'm impressed with coaches who get outside of the running bubble because I think it's very easy to put too much emphasis on the workouts and whatnot. I mean, obviously they're important, but there's we're not machines. There's a whole mental side. you got to motivate people. There's a lot more than just go run a quarter at 72 seconds. Oh, hundred percent. I'm probably less of a running nerd now than I ever have been, honestly. You know, I just, I just think that, uh, you can get overloaded with all that stuff. Um, you know, you, of course you, you, if somebody's doing really well, if a group's doing really well, you want to kind of try to see what they're doing and see if you can take anything from it. Um, but, uh, you know, if you read every single article and listen to every single podcast and read every single book, it's, it's just sensory overload and it can uh, cloud your judgment. You want to be able to make uh, sound, clear decisions uh, about your group. Yeah, maybe let's start kind of with the culture thing that you were talking about. How and maybe when the team first started, you just took whoever came to you. But now, can you be more particular in who you take? You know, is it is it does it work both ways? Like you're recruiting, and then at the same time, some athletes are reaching out to you. Like, and I assume, I guess there are athletes who haven't worked out and I, I don't even know who those are. Cause if, I think from afar, the media, we just focus on the success, but sort of maybe it's sort of that process. What do you think makes a successful athlete athlete in your program? Yeah, it's definitely a mix of us reaching out to people and people reaching out to us. Um, I think, you know, physiologically they have to be a fit because we're not trying to have 13 people right now. We have 13 on the roster. We're not trying to have 13 people doing 13 different things. We need people that respond to, uh, aerobic based training, you know, they need to enjoy and thrive off of tempo runs and long runs and, um, you know, lactate threshold work, things like that. If somebody were the type that, you know, they responded to lots of track work and two hundreds and four hundreds, that just, that's just not what we do. And so that wouldn't be a good fit. Um, we really believe in the team aspect. We meet every day. We believe in, um, the camaraderie of, of everything. So if you're not a person that likes to get up every single morning and run at the same time and the structure of that, then you're probably not going to be a good fit. We really like to compete. Uh, we like to race. We like to get in a variety of races like, you know, Steph running the half marathon and the 5,000 and cross country all this spring. We're not as focused on time. You know, we really, we really have found over the years kind of organically that we're best suited for, you know, the Boston's and the New York's and those kind of things where we can really compete. Um, so if, if that's not really 
appealing to you, then you're probably not a good fit. Um, and of course you have to be willing to move here and be in Flagstaff, which is also a big commitment. And so if you're the type that likes to be more of a nomad and bounce around, um, that's, that's also not a part of what we do. So, you know, uh, those are so, sort of some of the basics. I agree with everything except for that last one. What, what do you mean? Flagstaff's amazing. So it's, it's, no burden on anyone to have to move to Flagstaff. Oh, yeah, no, it, it's not. That's our easiest selling point. Obviously, uh, coming to Flagstaff is is not a hard selling point. If someone doesn't want to move to Flag, they shouldn't be in your program. They won't be any good. So yeah. everything else sounded great. Yeah, and and maybe you know, what are the goals for the program? And maybe that sounds simplistic, but it sounds like you thought about the culture and you came up with this. You know, this I don't know. Is it a PowerPoint or this ten page thing? This document. Do you guys is just the goal start, Hey, we want to make Olympic teams or like, how do you even define that? Cause it sounds like you've thought about this culture thing a lot more than some other coaches. Well, that is, it's interesting. That was actually a big part of the meeting and a big part of what we kind of concluded was that actually we just want to get better. You know, I think early on we made the mistake of, of setting these goals that were very tangible. And, um, you know, the thing about it is these people aren't, these people don't need a rah-rah speech. You know, they don't need, they, they all have these internal goals anyway. That's why they're doing this, you know. Um, I think, especially with the level we're at now and the level of athlete that we have on the team, if we just focus on getting better, all those things, all those extrinsic things that you think about making Olympic teams, winning national titles, setting these big PRs, those are all going to happen as a byproduct of just getting better. So we're just mostly trying to focus one day at a time, one week at a time on getting better each, each, each and every day, each and every week, each and every segment and, uh, and letting those other things that, you know, people can get caught up in sometimes just happen as a byproduct, whether it's Fallwell running 209, which he and I never even talked about, uh, in the whole segment ever, uh, or whether it's Steph running 1517, which in that race, we said, we're not going to look at the splits. We're not going to listen to the splits. All I'm going to do is stand here and tell you where you're at and, you know, whether you're in a good spot or not. And uh, we'll, we'll just see what the time is afterwards. So I think over the years, we found that um, the goal just is about the, the goal is just getting better individually and collectively. And you said there's 13 athletes now. There is. As a coach, is it hard to sort of manage all these athletes? I mean, you got to, each one may have different goals. And I mean, look at Stephanie Bruce, you ran a half marathon and then what, three weeks later, two weeks later. Two weeks later. This 5K, and then she's going to run the Boulder Boulder this next weekend. I mean, some of that stuff is, I'm sure, coming from her, but, like, some of that maybe is by design by you. Like, how, how do you manage, I don't know, all the athletes? And I'm sure you, as a coach you have your goals for them, and then each runner has their goals. Is that a hard thing? And then you, want, you have the team unit as a, a well to think about. Is it hard to manage all that? Yeah, it's hard, but I mean, that's the job, you know, I don't mind that it's hard. Uh, it's emotionally draining at times because, you know, the, like Kellen ran one marathon this spring, Alephine ran one marathon, Scott ran one marathon, but I feel like I ran all three, you know, <laughs> from an emotional standpoint. So it's, it's draining, but, um, but no, it's great. I mean, it's the best. I, I told somebody the other day that at the end of that six years when I was, um, I know this hasn't been recorded yet, but at the end of the six years, I used to own Big River Running Company, a running store in St. Louis, and I was very burnt out and fried at the end of six years. Now I'm six years into this, and I'm not fried at all because 
it's a con it's constantly a new challenge. Like each athlete and each segment provides a new challenge for me and that's exciting. And that's what keeps me going. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. We talked before we started about your journey to getting where you are now. And it's a pretty cool one. And I mean, you've been through a lot in the running world and I don't, I think we think of athletes sort of burning out, but we don't think of coaches and other people in the sport burning out. But I feel like there's a story that a lot of people can learn from, from there. Yeah. So, all right, this spring, I asked you this beforehand, but now I'm going to put you on the spot on the air. Like, is there a standout performance? How do you, I don't know what's, what's impressed you the most, or you're going to give me like, Oh, they're all good performance. <laughs> well, I, I don't mind trying to answer it as best I can. I mean, in the moment, they were each so fun, all these big ones that you've mentioned off the top. I mean, Alephine running 226 was really important for her development because she hadn't had a good marathon. And that's one of the big reasons she came to our group was to figure out the marathon. So I felt the giant sense of responsibility to figure it out. And, and her running 226, six-minute PR, I mean, I was elated, you know. Uh, and then the next week for Scott to run so well in Boston, I mean, obviously that meant – a ton. I mean, we've worked together for three and a half years. And so it's, it's a big deal. Um, and boss, I mean, obviously from an outside perspective, Boston clearly moved the needle more than anything else because it's Boston, you know, it's one of the biggest sporting events, uh, in the world, uh, annually. So that meant a lot. Uh, Kellen's race in Prague, people don't know what was going on with her four weeks out and, you know, she had a really tough four weeks leading up to that race for a variety of reasons. So for her to still go out and race fearlessly and run 226 was a huge deal. Um, a national title is always big uh, for Steph and, and sort of, and then even the 1517 was big because it was kind of proof. It was very good internally for our group to see her do that because it's kind of what we've been saying and what we talked about in our culture meeting was part of, part of our culture is look, we don't need to be on the track all the time. We do what we do, and that that's that's what leads to our best performances. She only did two track workouts between World Cross Country and um, Oxy. So, um, yeah, I mean, that meant a lot to me because it was um, it was uh, justification for, or I guess um, it gave it gave us a little bit of confidence in what we do, a little bit more confidence than we already had. Uh, so I don't know. They were all special. I guess if you, if you made me say something, I mean, the world marathon majors are always a huge deal for us. So for Scott to run 209 and get seventh at Boston and compete for as long as he did up front, uh, that was, that was probably the biggest performance if, if uh, you know, we had to get down to the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. I think from a outside perspective, uh I mean, for sure, Boston gets the most media. I, mean, I have to agree. Boston American man outside of Gale and you know, hadn't broken 210 in so long. So to be the most recent guy to do it, it's pretty cool. Well, I guess Jared is technically more recent because he was finished behind. That's right. <laughs> um, but for both of them, and, you know, I'm sure everybody wants to be the first American, right? Like, sure, you guys would be happy if Jared had finished one spot ahead, but that means a little something special, right? Oh, it's special. Yeah. And it's special because Jared's a good dude, you know, and he's a tough dude. And so to beat him is a big deal. And we saw that actually just from a business point of view, you know, in New York, when Scott was second American to Jared by four seconds, he just didn't get near the attention and love, which is fine. Um, 
that he did in Boston being 15 seconds ahead of him. It's so crazy. I mean, we put out a little recap video uh, on YouTube of his Boston performance and it's got 150,000 views. Um, and he's been on every podcast you could ever imagine. And every, all these video, he had to turn off Instagram on his phone because it just got too insane. So being the top American, it just makes a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When I was getting ready for this, I saw that Boston video on your YouTube. I need to watch it. I haven't watched it. I didn't have enough time, but that's cool that it's getting that sort of, reaction and it shows what the kind of casual running fan follows and also such a good performance i mean to go sub 210 yeah yeah i think so so congrats to that yeah with your with the three your three top women i would say or marathon women um alephine stephanie and kellen they've all sort of done different things but for me it seems like oh it could be like a little lab experience experiment you can see what they're all doing in training like Kellen's got the best marathon. What she's run two twenty four. Mm-hmm. Now Alephine's run two twenty six, and you know Kellen's sort of off marathon was two twenty six this year. Stephanie's been doing tremendous, but she, since with you, she hasn't. The one thing she hasn't done is run the good marathon yet. But like, how, do you view them? And they're all training for the same thing, right? Olympic marathon trials. So to, in training, is like Kellen ahead of them, or she has certain strengths that they don't have, or and you view her as like, oh, she's my number one. And these are my two and three marathoners or like, I mean, even maybe you couldn't even say that if you did, but how do you, and then in their training, you want them to work together, but they're going to be competitive. How do you manage all that? Yeah. It's something I'm thinking about as we head toward the trials, because the three of them have not done a marathon segment together yet. Uh, so that will be an interesting dynamic. I certainly want to put each of them individually in the best position possible to make the team. Um, you know, from a training perspective, they are different. You know, Kellen t- tends to be someone who pushes the envelope. She's not great at mastering being fast and relaxed and hitting the splits. She's very, um, I don't know how you would say it. She, she's just, well, I think everybody knows this from being an athlete or anybody that's listening that is an athlete. They, some of those athletes, they just always want to beat the splits, you know, and Steph is more the type that wants to hit them exactly, which is a benefit in a lot of ways because, and you see it in the 5k at Oxy, she's able to run fast and relax where Kellen is constantly practicing, not being relaxed. And so sometimes you see that in her races, you know, and we're working on that. Uh, Alephine is kind of a little bit more like Kellen. So we're working on that with her as well. And she actually got a, a, a big dose of that in her segment because Ben Bruce paced a lot of her workouts. So we forced her to really learn how to run efficiently, uh, which was helpful. Hopefully all their strengths and weaknesses can kind of um, come together and, and they can figure out how to use each other, I guess, to be as fit as possible individually for, for the trials. Yeah, and Kellen seems like maybe because she'd run to 24 in the past, but she's able, once you've done that, you can try new things. Like she went out at 71 this year in Prague or Rotterdam, Prague. Yeah, yeah, Kellen, I mean, look, Physically, Kellen has – I don't think it's uh, a knock on the other two to say that physically Kellen has reached a level in training that they have never reached uh, when it comes to marathon training for sure or just training in general. Uh, her fitness level certainly four weeks out from Prague was world-class, 100%. Then she got basically pneumonia and for the last four weeks never did a good workout and there was all this kind of other stuff. She had foster kids all of a sudden – that her and her husband were taking care of 
four weeks out from there. It was just a, a lot of stuff. But but um, all that to say, just because you've reached that level in practice and you've reached it like at grandma's once, you know, running 224 doesn't mean you don't still have work to do and you still have to do it on race day. So, um, yeah, the fact that she could go out, it wasn't just that she went out at 111 is it was that the first 5k was 1642 and at 10k they were at 3320, which is 110 pace two two twenty flat pace. Um, so that's what was so crazy about that race. And, and yeah, she was in a position where she could take a swing at it. Um, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. The the Pacers were supposed to be 111.45 even, uh, which they were not. And she could have chose not to follow it, but she did. And I still think in a lot of ways it was very impressive that she was able to never bonk. I mean, she just sort of got incrementally slower, uh, but she never hit the wall. I mean, she just, you know, each 5K just got a little slower. And so maybe having that experience is a good thing because you never know what's going to happen in the trials. Maybe it's going to be fast from the gun. We just don't know. You know, I thought it was a good run, and I didn't know anything about the her getting sick and the foster kids and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to sit there and <laughs> – I mean, that's not the first thing you want to tweet out or something after the race. Oh, yeah, but what if this – you know, it just, it's, just a, it's just bad form, you know. It's, nobody wants to hear that. So, um, But I know it happened. I know what the truth is, you know, and I know how fit she was. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens this fall. She'll run a marathon this fall, but hopefully it can be an a uninterrupted segment, and then it will be a very different result, I think. Right. Yeah. I joke this like Olympic champions and stars, they never seem to get sick. They never seem to have these other problems that everybody else has, but they must have. And then one, they may be better than get around them. Well, two, if they had at the day of the Olympics, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be the champion. You wouldn't hear about them. Well, and Kellen takes on a lot, you know, she takes on a lot and she doesn't, she just isn't a person who could function well if all she did was run and that's fine. And I know that's who she is and you can't ask somebody to be somebody she's not, you know, and, um, uh, did it cost her this time a little bit? Yeah, maybe. But, um, you know, I, I also know that if she did the whole nap every day thing and, um, dedicate her whole life to this, you know, every hour of every day, she wouldn't have fun. And if you're not having fun, then you're not going to run well. So you got to make compromises a little bit. Yeah. So she's got a bunch of foster kids. Well, her husband and her have been trying to get foster kids for a long time now, and it's a kind of a process to go through all the applications. And all that paperwork was finally done uh, earlier this spring. And the way it works, to my understanding, is you never know when you're going to get them. So if if I have the timeline right, I think it was either four and a half or five and a half weeks out from the race, one of those Wednesdays, she literally had one of the best workouts of her life. It was totally insane. And then that afternoon she got a knock on the door from social services and they had two boys at their door uh, a one-year-old and a two-year-old and so for the next week and a half her life was just turned totally upside down she was doing second runs at 9 p.m and it was totally insane and then sure enough she got sick which is not really that surprising and um you know again i'm not trying to make excuses it's just that's just what happened that's so, funny yeah these things are related i'm like I didn't yeah, you get sick from kids. I, I didn't even realize they were related. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm taking six minutes off of marathon time. So no, I don't, no, I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to sit no, here and say, I'm just kind of joking yeah. a little bit, but yeah, yeah. It, it just, it affected training for sure. Um, but we're not going to sit here and guess what it would have meant and, and um, all that kind of stuff. We're just going to move on. Yeah. I feel like she, just even the way you're talking about her training, she still hasn't run one like she could. We're working on it, you know. We're, we're, I mean, Grandma's was 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 really good. That was really good. But the next step beyond that is to figure out how to do it head to head, right up against people. 
you know, because in grandma, she was able to get away at halfway and run the whole thing basically by herself. And I think for her, that actually brought a level of comfort because that felt more, more like Lake Mary road and the workouts we do. Um, but of course you can't get away with that at the, at the trials or at a world marathon major, you have to, you have to bang heads, you know? And, uh, so hopefully the trial segment, well, even this fall where we get more workouts in with Steph and with Alephine and they're all running together. Um, I'm hopeful that that will actually be a huge benefit for her in, in, in taking that next step and being able to do it right up against people. Yeah. I didn't really thought about that, but you were talking about her sort of pressing all the time. Yeah. Always pressing. And races. And I had some high school dad email me this week and he's like, my son's not showing it in the races and all this other stuff. He's sticking with these kids in training and not races. And sometimes he starts too fast and all this other stuff. And first of all, I'm like, okay, if he's sticking with the kids in the races and in the training and not the races, he's probably training too hard. Yeah. You need to teach, like you said, it's a fine line because you want people like Kellen who can push, I feel like. And I'm curious if, you, if your coaching philosophy agrees with this, but you're also teaching the body to be like, like I think you said, like relaxed and fast. You're trying to run yeah. effi- as efficiently as possible. There's no bonus points for running hard. You're trying to run fast. And to do that, you need to be as relaxed. So if you're always crossing the line in training, you're not teaching your body to relax. And then racing, same thing, right? If you're some people, like some really top high scores, especially in the girls' side, they're never used to running with other people. So then they get in a race with somebody at the next level, and they're like, "Whoa, this is it's stressful mentally because they're with people and all that other stuff." And then they can't just run whatever pace that feels perfectly natural to them. Yeah, I liken it to like a grade school or a high school basketball to, team doing layups, right? So you do layup after layup after layup after layup after layup, after layup so it feels second nature. So when it happens. So when you have a breakaway in the game, you just, it's a layup and you just hit it. It's no problem. It, that, that's what to me, marathon effort is like, it should feel second nature, you know, and, and you should be really, really efficient at it. But if you're constantly like pressing in practice and running a little faster than it, uh, than marathon pace. And if you're constantly like, um, uh, picking it up halfway through the workout and, and getting a little faster than you're supposed to be, then that's what your body's used to. And that's what it's going to do in the race. Um, so you have to practice holding back and and being controlled and really in control of um, your pace and your body. So uh, we're working on it. We're working on it. We're getting there. Yeah, if we're like critiquing a 224 and a 226, I feel like you're doing pretty well. So the team meets every day for practice, like you guys, every run, or even if they're going to go easy, everybody gets together and meets and goes out and prays with Yeah, six, six days a week. We try to do one weekend day on your own. Um and Monday mornings, a lot of times we run on our own because we have strength uh, at 10 a.m. So we meet for that. Uh, but but yeah, but we're still meeting. So we meet every day uh, outside of one on your own day on the weekend. And I noticed like everything's logged on online. Like I was, I saw the, uh, like today's runs are already on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I don't know. To me, that's just uh, part of our philosophy in terms of sharing with the fans, you know, because we've always taken the approach that even though we do race a decent bit, it's still nothing like the NBA. They're playing 82 games a year, you know, and there's a press conference after every game. So there's interviews after every game and you just get so much more. And so we're just trying to give the fans as much as we can give them. Uh, I've never felt like it was some kind of disadvantage for us because the other groups, the other coaches, the other athletes, they believe in what they do just like we do. And so they're not trying to copy us. And even if they were, it's not all about the training. It's about, the intangibles and the strength work we're doing and the belief we have in each other. So, um, you know, the training is just a part of it. It seems like you guys do do a good job of, I don't know, you got the training stuff, 
That's on Final Surge, by the way. Another a Let's Run advertiser. Yes, our partners. But then you've got like a YouTube channel, obviously your Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. But like, I feel like you guys do a, I don't know, I think someone called in our podcast one time and said, oh, Scott's popular because people can follow them, you know, all their trainings posted. And I don't know, I'm not following it, but I'm like, yeah, you really could. Like, it's easy to sort of, once you start learning about stuff, it's easier to start rooting for people and following them and that sort of thing. Well, I hope so. And that's why we do it on various channels, right? Because just like you say, look, you're, you're not at this stage of your life. You're not just going to nerd out and go on our website every day and look at our training every single day. I don't expect that. But, but but some people are, right? Some people are looking at it on Twitter, some people on Facebook, some people on Instagram. So you just you just put it out there. Uh, you just kind of put the tentacles out there and, and um, people will find us where they're going to find us, you know? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's cool. So let's take a step back and talk about how this group got here, how you got to Flagstaff. I just remember you emailing me throughout the years at various things, and you weren't always Ben Rosario, NAZ, Hoka NAZ elite coach. You know, you were a runner back in the day, that sort of stuff. So it sounds like you, I guess you're from St. Louis. Is that right originally, Missouri? That's right. That's right. Go Cardinals, go Blues. I'm a Texas Rangers fan. You guys still owe us one. <laughs> I was at that. I was at game six and game seven, 2011. Oh, Greatest two nights of my life. Um, I didn't realize that, like, what all these Cubs fans were about. But now that we haven't been back or, or anywhere close to getting back, I'm like, I get it now. Like, oh yeah, thirty years could go by and they still haven't won the World Series. Um, damn you, Nelson Cruz. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I wasn't even going to start with your own running career, but maybe we, that's where we should start. Kind of. I don't know, high school running in St. Louis? Is that, that, that your first memories of running? Like, oh, gosh, we can, we can skip over this pretty quick. It wasn't very interesting. But, yeah, yeah, I ran. and It was mid-'90s, and as you know, that was kind of the doldrums. So uh, my times weren't very fast, but no, no, no times were very fast. I remember a year where I think there was only one guy in the whole country who ran under nine minutes for uh, 3,200. So, um, yeah, I came out of that and then went to college at Truman State, uh, which is a D2 school. We ended up getting fourth in the country my senior year in cross country. And then I ran for the Hansons for two years after that. All right. So you, you do Hansons, you run what, 218 and what's your, what's your 10 KPR? What's your, what's your, what's your, what's your running best running accomplishment? I think my best running accomplishment is that I had range. Now I was a jack of all trades and a master of none, but I ran a 403 mile and a 218 marathon. So that's decent. Yeah, no, that, that is good. Makes you a good coach too, right? Because you've you've got you got a lot of experience in different things. So Hanson through what two thousand four trials, two thousand five. Yeah, I ran the 04 trials with Hanson's, and then I I was on the team through the summer of 05, so two full years, and then I went back home that summer and took a job back home to St. Louis and took a job as the special events director for the Go St. Louis Marathon. And I did that for one year and that was cool. I got to work with, you know, the event side of things and did some uh, cool stuff with their kids program and their uh, mature mile with seniors. I was, I was doing all kinds of stuff, going to schools and going to um, senior living homes and facilities and trying to promote health and fitness. It was fun. And then um, after that, in 2006, my buddy, Matt Helbig and I started big river running company, which was, um, you know, totally from scratch. It was a, a run specialty store. Uh, we opened it in 06. Uh, and then by 08, we had two locations. By 2010, we had three locations. 
And, you know, we're very successful. It was, we were very fortunate, but we worked very hard. And then in 2012, after six years, I was just burnt out, just fried and um, needed a change. And so my wife and I and our one-year-old daughter, uh, I sold my half of the business and we moved to Flagstaff. When you were owning these running things, were you still trying to compete or you gave that up after the Hanson's deal? Uh, no, I, I was competing still in 2005, right after I came back, I was, I was kind of lucky because St. Louis is so hot and humid, you know? And, uh, so I was training for the twin cities marathon, which was the U S champs in October of 05. And so I was just doing all my workouts in terrible conditions. And then the race ended up being unseasonably warm and humid and I got second place and I won 20,000 bucks, which was more than I had won in two years. Um, with the Hansons, which is no fault of theirs. It's just how it worked. And, um, so I took that money and that's what I used to, um, start the store. Uh, and then Matt threw in money and, uh, our friends and family threw in some money. And, and that's, that's, I mean, honestly, that was vital in, in uh, being able to start the stores. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yes. I mean, 20 grand, that's not easy to come by in the sport of running. Oh yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it was really, I was really, um, it was awesome. Yeah. And then after that I ran, uh, um, a couple more marathons, but they didn't go well. I ran the 07 trials, but it was a disaster. I think something I ran grandma's in 06 and it was hot and I finished and I probably shouldn't have. And I swear like something in my body after that, I couldn't run long runs anymore. Like I used to be able to, and I get out in these marathons and I just feel not like myself and just fried. And it was, it was really weird. Um, so I don't know what happened physiologically or mentally or whatever, but then I dropped down in distance and ran a couple of mile races because it was just fun. And that's when I ran, I ran a 403 mile at age 29. Really? Which was, which was oh, wow. I figured that was college. In college, I only ran 419. Um, so it was like, to your point earlier, really good couple of years for me, 2008, 2009, because I did all these different workouts that I had never done before. And I was doing ancillary work and uh, weights and drills and things that I had never done. And they really made me a lot faster. So I learned a lot and um, I incorporate some of those things even, even today. That's pretty cool. The 403 at 29 after getting second in the U S marathon champs. So you're burned out. You moved to Flagstaff, like you're no job, no nothing. Like what are you, what are you doing? You got a, you got a wife and kid. This sounds irresponsible. <laughs> well, I had a chunk of change obviously from selling the business. Um, so I could have done, a lot of different things, but I, I came out to flag cause I had been out here for three weeks in 2007 training and I loved the town and, um, I just knew it was a slower pace of life, which I definitely needed. Uh, I did do, I did take a job right away with Greg McMillan, who I knew and, um, did some marketing for him for his online coaching business for a year. And then, uh, my wife and I had all these little side hustles. We were selling some running t-shirts online and just doing a couple different things. And what was that thing called? The t-shirt run, run fan shop. We were selling, uh, we were selling just various little funny t-shirts, um, running related, you know, and we were breaking even actually, I think we could have done okay with it. Um, but you know, it was just kind of a side hustle. Like I said, cause then in the summer of 13, I started coaching Matt Yano and then uh, Eric Fernandez, who was a uh, University of Arkansas kid that was a St. Louis guy that I knew, came out. And so I was coaching those two. And then when Greg's Adidas group dissolved at the end of 13, then I uh, started working with Steph Bruce and Ben Bruce and Scott Smith and Kellen Taylor, who are all still on the team, by the way, um, and Amy Van Alstein. And uh, it was just a good group. So that's when Jen and I 
my wife and I said, okay, well now we found what we want to do. So we just got rid of all the side hustle stuff and stopped all that. And for a year, we just focused on the team. So I think we spent $40,000 of our own money uh, in 2014 on travel and gear and little bonuses for the athletes and things like that. And, um, you know, in the meantime, we were building our social media presence and our brand and making pitches to various companies. And then in 2015, uh, that's when we signed with Hoka as our title sponsor in February. Uh, and we actually had a couple other shoe companies interested as well, which gave us leverage, which was nice and very important. Uh, so, you know, it all worked out and, and, and now we're in our second contract with Hoka, uh, and, uh, we have a renewal option for, for a third, uh, contract that would take us through 2024. So, uh, you know, all is well. Yeah. Sounds good. sounds like, a, you know, it's like a little, it's a business. No one really thinks of it like that, but how does that work with the athletes? Are you guaranteed a certain budget to sign athletes or the athletes are signed separately and it's sort of assigned to the team? Is there any difficulty ever with that? Yeah, 100% it's a business. I mean, we thought of it as a business right away, you know. Um, so the way it works in general is, you know, we get a lump sum from Hoka and then underneath that we're able to uh, pay salaries to the athletes and to myself and to Ben as the assistant coach and, um, you know, we're able to pay for strength and conditioning work and massage and chiropractic and travel and all those things. So we're pretty much in charge of the budget internally, but Hoka, they're the ones that are paying for all of it. Uh, and then there's a bonus structure as well on top of that. So I think, it, I mean, obviously we have an NDA like everybody does in this sport, but we are a nonprofit. So you can see some of these things if you really wanted to. So like the, in the New York Times piece uh, last week or last fall, I should say that that they did on our team. Um, I think Matt Futterman, who was the journalist, he, he looked it up. And I, I mean, I think the number he put out there was like 750,000 a year. So, you know, underneath all that, we got to make all this happen. Um, so it's not crazy, but it's a very nice budget and we're very fortunate. Yeah. Matt Fetterman, my neighbor. Oh, nice. Great dude. Yeah. It's got a running book coming out this spring, everybody. I saw that. Yeah. It's just kind of cool how you sort of created this thing, but I don't know. I, so it sounds like the athletes kind of work for you, not directly for Hoka kind of deal. Yeah, correct. So their contract is with NAZ Elite, you know, and our contract is with Hoka. Uh, which I think is a better way to do it. I think it's better for the athletes. It's um, better for the groups, but you know, everybody does it differently. Um, that's, that's how we do it. And uh, luckily we have a very good relationship with Hoka. Mike McManus, who's the sports marketing uh, manager trusts me and we have a good uh, working relationship. And so, I mean, obviously I do uh, talk to him about the recruits and the different athletes we want to bring in and get his approval. But uh, in terms of the actual contract, yeah, they're negotiating it with us, which is nice. So does the, do the athletes contract sort of, does the time frame match up with your contract with Hoka or I don't know, let's say Kellen, you know, knocks it out of the park and runs 220. There's going to be a bonus with you guys or the bonus is going to be with the bonuses are through Hoka. Okay. Okay. So the, the bonus structure is all through Hoka and Hoka pays the bonuses. And so um, that's how that works. Obviously, we can't sign someone beyond when our contract ends with Hoka. That would be irresponsible. How would we pay that? But um, yeah, so it jives in that sense. Uh, and of course, the salaries are just like any other sport. You know, the, the backup shortstop on the Yankees isn't going to get paid as much as the starting shortstop. So it varies uh, based on credentials and value. And are some people working on the side or is everybody running full-time? Uh, a couple people are. Uh, 
you know, Aaron Clark, one of the rookies, works at the candy shop downtown in Flagstaff. Uh, Danny Shanahan, one of the rookies, is doing a little bit of uh, daycare work. And, you know, and then a couple people work on the side, even though they don't need to, just because they like to stay busy. So Steph has all her entrepreneurial um, enterprises with her coaching business and her camp and her and Ben do that together. So, you know, it just depends, but yeah. Um, and then there are some of them that, you know, obviously they just focus on running full time, like Scott Fauble and, uh, that works for him. And does your experience sort of with Hanson's, I don't know, did that lead to some of this now? Cause like at Hanson's you had to work in the stores. It's, you know, it's not easy work, right? Like, do you think it's a lot easier for people when they can just run? I mean, I never want to say that it's, it's the only way to do it because like I said, whether it be Kellen or stuff, like some people, some people need a little bit something else in their life, you know? So I don't want to say it can't be done uh, while working, but uh, you know, my preference is that they don't have to work, you know? So that way they can do things on the side if they want, but it's, they're choosing to do it, you know, and, and they're in control of those hours and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, my experience at the Hanses was certainly a formative time in my life, I always felt like, I mean, it was never some goal that I wrote down on my mirror, but I always felt like that would be a really fun thing to do, run a group like that. And and when I was at the stores, when I was with Big River in St. Louis, we had sort of a sub-elite group that was kind of a mini version of what I'm doing now. And we got people to the trials and the marathon and, and on the track. And um, I coached all those people and it was a lot of fun. And uh, we tried to be uh, really present in the community in St. Louis. Uh, and it's sort of a, again, a mini version of what we're doing now on a, on a much larger scale. So, uh, yeah, all those things helped me. As you were asking that, answering that last question, I was listening to an audio message. My brother sent me, he's got some questions for you. His first question was, why isn't the rest of the team on the same drugs that Stephanie Bruce is on? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Ben Bruce told me that there was a message board thread that, um, wondering about stuff and doping. And, you know, the easy thing to do is laugh it off and say, oh, it's a, it's like a, a compliment or something for people to think that, uh, I mean, I guess you could do that. It's not a laughing matter, really. I mean, obviously it's, it's, uh, but no, but I figured like it's the ultimate compliment when yeah. people accuse me on my own forums of being on drugs. And I'm like, you think I'm on drugs? Like, that means you think I'm good. Like I was so <laughs> shocked. Cause I'm like, I'm not any good, but you guys think I'm on drugs. Great. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a bummer that, you know, it really is the fault of the drug cheats, right? You know, that we have to think that every time somebody does well, which is really kind of shitty. Um, but, uh, no, you know, Steph's running really well right now because she's healthy, you know, and she's, she's really worked hard at being healthy. And so uninterrupted training for two plus three plus years is just paying off, you know? And, um, that's really what we're all trying to do is, is just put together uninterrupted, uninterrupted training for long periods of time. Uh, and that's why she's doing well. That's why Fauble's doing well. That's why Alphine and Kellen and the others are doing well. So no, no big secret. And then his second question was about recruiting. He's like college track is largely about recruiting. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but he's like, do you feel that way? Like if you could get the top guy out of college, I mean, just automatically your group would be almost at another level or you're just starting with something that's easier to mold. Do you sort of, is the recruiting process really important? And I don't know, like, you like Hoka doesn't have the budget that Nike has. Do you feel like that's just the rules of the game or something you can work with, or you're hoping to 
get more budget? How, how do you view that? Oh, he's right. I mean, you got to have the horses, you know? Um, I mean, you could raise Bill Bowerman for the dead, right? But if you give him <laughs> 10 flat high school kids, he ain't going to produce a Steve Prefontaine. You know, I mean, that's just how it is. So, no, we're trying to get the best people we can. Um, you know, we're we're lucky that we have a pretty darn talented group. You know, Kellen was third in the NCAA in the indoor mile. Steph was a two-time All-American in the 10K. Alphine was a 14-time All-American. Alice Wright was multiple-time All-American. Back, Matt Baxter. So we're we're – we're pretty close. I mean, we got a lot of blue chippers. Um, we're not, we don't have any national champions, but we've got a lot of people who were really good. Um, we're, our budget is not unlimited. We can't just go out and get Edward Cheserek, you know, who has 20 national titles or whatever, but, uh, but we're getting really good people and we're producing really good results with those people. Yes. I feel like Matt ba- Baxter is a good example. One, he's not American, so it probably doesn't cost as much. But two, he's second in NCAA cross. Like, yeah, he's talented. Very under the radar, but that's a very good pickup, I feel. And the third thing was somewhat related to resources, but he's like, why don't more groups groups do high-low training? Um, I assume you guys do the high-low. I saw something on Alephine's thing that she went to Camp Verde. Oh, yeah. Week, and she was given very specific splits. She said it was important <laughs> to hit them, which is important. Yeah. But why don't you think more people don't do high-low training? Is it like people don't like to do the driving, that sort of stuff? And then my brother went off on a tangent saying they could get you a helicopter and you could fly down much quicker. <laughs> we go down all the time. So I don't know. I mean, we go down all we're, – we're in Camp Verde all the time. Uh, we go down to Sedona a fair bit, but I like Camp Verde better because we have a three-mile loop down there on the road that we can use for all sorts of different workouts, and it's lower. It's 3,100 feet instead of 4,500 in Sedona. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think people do go down. I don't, I don't know what he means. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's why more people don't do, move to flag and do it. But when I was in flag, there was five people there. Now there's <laughs> 50. Is there, is there a real track in Camp Verde now? No, it's a dirt track. Yes. We don't we don't go to the dirt track much. It's a little slippy. I, I prefer the road down there. Now, it's kind of curious when I saw Alephine saying it said, like, very important to hit these splits. Was that on the roads? Uh, that was on the roads. Yeah, we just – the reason I wanted her to make sure she hit those splits is because, like I was talking about earlier – her and Kellen just need to work on that. You know, they need to work on being in control and being really efficient. And um, she's very early in her training coming off of Rotterdam. So, uh, and she did, she did a great job and her and Danny Shanahan ran that workout together and they nailed it. Well, I was glad one that you went to Camp Verde because I love Camp Verde. It seemed like more people went to Sedona, but I'm like, no, you want to get as low as quickly as possible. That's right. But then when I saw that workout with specific splits, I was like, Oh, they must have a real track now. The track I ran on, there's no way you could hit specific splits. Like the, there might be more dirt one day than the day before. Yeah. yeah, no, we're on the road and we got every quarter mile marked on that around that whole three mile loop. And uh, yeah, we go there all the time. I mean, now I, I, I know like scientifically, some scientists would want you to, or physiologists would want you to go do, down low for every single workout. But I actually think there's value to staying up here for some sessions because, or for a good bit of work because it's so much harder and Maybe it's an old school thing to say, but there's something to doing a workout that feels really hard, you know, and breathing really hard and controlling that up here at 7,000 feet. Uh, And then, of course, going down for a race and feeling like a million bucks because you've been doing workouts at 7,000. So I think it's good to do a mixture. I could see that. I mean, I almost always went down, but I do a few workouts in flag. But do you feel that altitude really helps people? Like you can sense your threshold much more like... And now uh, if you're at 7,000 feet and you go over, you're done. Like, and I feel like at sea level, 
people can push too hard. They don't feel it. So maybe I feel like if you get used to training at a, even a moderate altitude too, like maybe then during a race, you can kind of sense like, okay, this is where I'm at. Okay, relax. Let's calm down a bit. Or am I making this up? I think you can handle the spikes better, you know, in a race. Um, so, you know, when, when we have a little hill here in Flagstaff, your heart rate is going to spike so high, you know? Um, whereas then you go down and you're racing at sea level and somebody throws in a surge or you hit a hill, your heart rate doesn't get near as high as it does up here. So you're just able to handle it more. Uh, that's why I think altitude uh, trained athletes typically handle hills and surges better, whether it be the East Africans or people in America that train at altitude. Um, so that, that for me, that's what it is. It's just that ability to um, buffer changes in pace and changes in terrain better than uh, if you're training at sea level. That makes sense. Do you know much about the Carbon X shoes? Well, not, maybe not as much as you, you know, you, you guys, no, I'm just kidding. I, I know a good bit about them. I mean, I, I was involved at least in the, in terms of um, our athletes trying them out as the various iterations came through the pike or came down the pike. Um, the latest iteration. So what's actually out that you can buy. I really like um, Scott Smith wore them at the 25 K got second there. That was a big run. Um, a couple of the athletes have been doing workouts in the last over the last couple of weeks in them and they're doing very well. So yeah, I don't, I, I mean, ask me whatever you want about them, but I, I, uh, I do know a fair bit. No, I was just curious. Like, Cause I don't, I'm not a shoe guy. I have a pair. They're on, they're actually still on me. I love them walking around that sort of stuff. And then also it's in my head, I think. So when I run now in them, yeah, I feel faster and I don't know they've got a lot of support and I feel like my foot's angled a slightly different way, but I don't know if I'm making some of this stuff up, but then when I'm trying to press the shoe designers for some claims about the shoes, you know, they don't want to go there. And I'm like, come on, tell me they're like 5% faster. <laughs> kind of joking around, but I was trying to press them a bit because I've never had the carbon rocket on. And I know that's what Scott ran 209 on. And that's, I know Cam Levins ran 209 in and that's got a carbon plate and there's all this stuff with because of the Nike Vaporfly, the carbon plates and all this stuff. And I was like, well, you know, the let's run people want to know which shoe they want to wear. So, but you guys, you coach marathoners. Do you think in the marathon people will be primarily racing in the carbon rocket or the carbon X is more versatile for training? The shoe also seems very durable, like for a racing shoe. Like I've been wearing it around that sort of stuff. How do you view that or to be determined? Well, Hoka, first of all, is a cool company to work with because they are not requiring us to wear the Carbon X. You know, they have the Carbon Rocket as well. They have the Rehi. So, you know, for, for them, it's whatever works best for each of our athletes. So that's nice. Um, and they stayed true to the Hoka DNA, I feel like, in this Carbon X. They, the Hoka, look, Hokas have always um, had that cushion with energy return in mind. They've always had that sort of meta rocker shape to them. That's that with the idea of propelling you forward. And they've been playing around with carbon in the midsole for a long time. We were trying out carbon rocket prototypes as early as 2015 when we started the group. So, and, and carbon also, by the way, that's not what makes any of these shoes, whether it's the competitors or the carbon X so great. I mean, spikes have had carbon plates for a long, long time. Um, it's the shape and the cushion and the, um, the way the shoe, uh, reacts to the ground that is making these new flats. So, um, 
valuable, right? So uh, anyway, um, I, I think they're a good shoe and we're just getting started. So I don't know what we're going to wear moving forward in all these races, but I do like both shoes. I like the Carbon X and the Carbon Rocket a lot and um, no complaints so far from me. I don't know. I guess I need to, the, the moral of the story for me is I got to start running again <laughs> so I can test them all out. Compare yeah, them. You and me both. I haven't tested them out either. I don't know what they feel like underfoot. I'm just asking each athlete and, and I'm, I'm just asking them to keep an open mind because, um, you know, I don't want them to fall in love just because it's the newest shoe. I want them to run in whatever they feel is best. And I think that's good for the brand too, for Hoka, because then we can give a really genuine opinion when we're being asked questions about the shoe. Um, and I think the fact that Scott ran so fast and Alphine and Kellen in variety of shoes, like Scott ran in the carbon rocket to 209, but then Kellen and Alphine ran in the tracer to 26. So the tracer is also a good flat and that's kind of the flat we've been running in for a long time now. And there's nothing wrong with that one either. So I don't know. I think, I think we shouldn't get too caught up in the shoe. I think we should uh, get really fit wear the shoe that works best for us individually and uh, you know, see what happens. Yeah. I think it's good to have sort of options because one place I don't want the sport to go is I don't want someone to win and whether that's drugs or shoes or whatever, because they have a shoe that someone else doesn't have. hundred percent. I agree. I mean, like the more I think about this, even like, well, maybe with a record, it's less important because somebody else can get the shoes afterwards. So like Walmsley, when he ran the time, the shoe wasn't available. So that's not really fair. But if you're just from a record perspective, like, okay, I guess somebody could go get the shoe now and run in it, whatever. But like, oh, the day of the Olympic marathon, you unveil some shoe and no one else has ever, and, you know, to some extreme, let's say you put rollers on it or something. I mean, obviously that <laughs> wouldn't be legal, but like, where do you draw the line? So the more options out there, the better, but yeah, me jogging with the dogs, not jogging. I'm, I'm tempoing with the jog dogs now because of this shoe. But yeah, they, the Hoker perspective, I feel like how they treat you is kind of how they've treated it. They're like, no, go explore the ultra marathon, do what you want. Oh yeah, these new shoes are coming out. I was like, that's it? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> all right, cool, all right. <laughs> we, can, we can figure something out. Related to that, yeah, do you personally get a bonus? Let's say somebody, Kellen Taylor wins the Olympic marathon trials. Is there a bonus for the coach? Well, the way we set up the contract this time, we did not do that. But that's not to say the first iteration of the contract did have coaching bonuses in there. And like, look, the, the bottom line is I, I just wanted to get the second one done. And my focus was on the athletes. I always figured it would shake out for me in the end if, if, the, if the program was successful long term. And so um, – I wasn't big on pushing anything for myself this time around. Um, I think next time around, you know, not to negotiate publicly here, but uh, I, I just wanted to be in line with uh, what other coaches are getting and, and how those bonuses are structured and taking into account so, how some of the college coach uh, contracts are structured. And, um, you know, um, I think we'll get that done. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, I just I never realized how it was done with you. So it's just sort of interesting. And is the travel separate or like, I mean, you could bring on an extra athlete and that would come out of your pocket, right? Like, well, it wouldn't come out of my pocket, but it would come out of the NAZ Elite General Fund. So we, my my wife really works the books. So she she's the one that budgets all the travel out. So basically, at the beginning of the year, she <laughs> harps on me to kind of give her 
a schedule as best I can figure uh, what races we're going to be at throughout the whole year. And then she sort of overestimates how much the travel is going to be for everything and comes up with a travel budget. And then, you know, um, just works on it all year, trying to make sure that we stay on task and stay on budget uh, as the year goes on. But um, yeah, travel is something we figure out well beforehand. We're not just flying by the seat of our pants. I guess, yeah, you, so you have like a, you, have, you personally have like a set salary? Correct. Yeah, I guess it's a nonprofit, so you don't get to, you wouldn't get to keep it, so. Yeah, we have a board of directors and, um, you know, they, they approve all these things as well. Wow. Sounds very, I guess it's a nonprofit. It's got to be above board, but very cool. I think that's pretty much, I've asked everything. I've learned a lot about the team, the program, that sort of stuff. So thanks for taking the time, but maybe to sort of end it, you know, what are the, what should we be looking forward to from the team? Is the, is it all geared around 2020? I kind of started with this question, but sort of someone who's listened this far, you know, what should they be expecting from your team in the next year or so? I don't think it's all about 2020. I think, again, with our group being involved in the marathon, although we're good at a variety of things, luckily with the big city marathons, those are really important too. You know, So uh, I think you'll see us continue to compete in a variety of events, track, cross-country road, big marathons, uh, obviously national championship type races, and um, you know, just keep getting better. And, and yeah, come the trials, of course, we're going to be ready to roll. We're going to be ready on the day. And I don't remember if it was you or your brother, one of you in the, in the podcast that Stephanie was on was, you were giving us a compliment, which is nice, but you said, you know, I'd love to see somebody from a smaller team make the team. And I would just like to say, I don't know how small, I mean, we're pretty big. We've done a lot of stuff and we get a lot of money from our sponsor and we're, we're winning national titles and we're placing in, in world marathon majors. And, uh, outside of two groups in Portland, I'm not sure who's bigger than us, but, um, you know, I think we're going to continue to try to, uh, compete at a world-class level. Yeah, that's true. You're, you're, but people root for the underdog. So I, was yeah, I don't mind being the underdog. I was that's giving good. you a compliment. You're still the underdog. That's fine. I'll you be the underdog. Too big, you're the, you become the evil empire. You know? That's right. I'll, I'll be the underdog. That's fine. I mean, Nike does tremendous things, but because they're so big, people love to shit on them. So <laughs> that's that's right. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, they do some stupid stuff too, but you know, <laughs> the biggest, everyone notices it. So that's right. You're you're like a uh, you're you're big on the sports analogies. So you're like, you're like a uh, basketball or something. You're not a UNC or, or Kentucky or something, but you're, you're the next level. Next that's level. right. I'll take it. You can still get the Final Four and win some national championships. Oh, I got one more for you on that on that same uh, line of thinking. Jonathan, who I love, my favorite sports uh, running you, journalist. Uh, you can call us out for anything right now. Yeah, I'm going to call you out for this too, but but it's 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 in a fun a fun natured way or good natured way. So um, he said he doesn't see any way Kellen Taylor could make the Olympic marathon team, which is fine. I get it on paper, you know, whatever, blah blah blah, and that's a hot take. That's fine. That's a fine hot take. Um, I'll I'll say this: if after the fall he still thinks that, I'll run a marathon myself. And I don't think I've run over nine miles in a year. So that's my challenge to Jonathan. No no other side of the bet. It's a one-sided bet. If he still thinks she has no chance after the fall, I'll run 26.2 miles. All right. Sounds good. And he should listen to this because the pneumonia, he's got to factor in the pneumonia thing or getting sick. Well, yeah, well, real quick, what are the fall marathon plans for your team or are they still up in the air? Well, we can't say because of the contract stuff, but uh, Alephine's going to run one. Steph's going to run one. Kellen's going to run one. Scott Smith's going to run one. 
so we just have to wait for all those announcements to come out. So everyone but Scott Fable? Yeah, Fable probably won't because, you know, he ran New York and then Boston. Um, so he'll probably work on some other stuff and then get ready for the trials. And have you guys, have you as a coach, have you heard anything about the Olympic marathon qualifying process from USATF or anyone else? Uh, a little bit. We've gotten some emails and I've had a couple phone calls, but as far as I understand, it's still being figured out. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of shocked. It sounds like talking to some people involved with this, there's not, not been a lot of communication. I mean, there, I mean, there's been, I mean, I don't want to say that. I mean, they've been very nice to me. Uh, Mike Scott, who works for USATF called me right after the IAAF thing came out. And so, I mean, we've had communication and there's been emails to the athletes, but, um, I just don't think there's a final decision yet. And for us, it doesn't, I don't think it's going to really affect us much either way. So we're just, whatever, uh, we'll just be ready on the day. Yeah. You're sitting pretty now with Scott's time. So <laughs> you probably don't want the rules to change for the better. No, I, you know, whatever. I, I, you know, I think let's, I, it, my hope is that it's top three, make it. And that's, you know, that's what I hope. Okay. Well, pass on your bet to John. <laughs> yeah. John's too honest. He can't still say she has no chance just to make you run a marathon. I don't think he'd do that. So, uh, no, no, no. It's all good. You know, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. But I was sort of shocked when he said that. I mean, he loves the like blue blood talent and that sort of stuff. But the motto of our website, we've done this a couple of times. The motto of our website is where your dreams become reality. So of course she has a chance. I mean, I was thinking she got fourth last time, but she got six, but she like made that race. She went for it. And to tell me like, four years later, she's not going to have a chance. And then also to hear you talk, the way you talked about her training, once you talk to a coach and really, you know, that opens some eyes to me. You're not just going to like play her up for the sake of playing her up. You've seen a lot of stuff in training. So yeah. after listening to this, I think your marathon, you're safe. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thanks. All right, man. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye.